Hello, and welcome back to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, broadcasting to you, if you're listening live, that is, live from uh, Netflix headquarters in uh, sunny, not that cold, even in the middle of the winter, Los Angeles, <laughs> right in the heart of Hollywood. Um, and uh, I am joined, as always, by Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. Sadly, no Tolkien Maven Trish Lambert today. Um, yes. we, uh, I think... I think um, Trish and I are like the star-crossed podcasters who uh, can't ever find a Friday where we're both available. Um, but I'm, I'm feeling optimistic for 2019. We'll see. <laughs> good, good. We'll see. That's yeah, awesome. And so, you know, uh, Dave, just like a one sort of small side thought, like can you imagine yes. what uh, – what you and I would have said if somebody had told us in like episode three of riddles in the dark, uh, that someday, you know, our, our show would be being, (laughs) we would start off with saying live from the Netflix headquarters in California, in Hollywood, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we have so arrived or you have so arrived anyway. (laughs) There's still hope for us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So just all you got to do, you know, right. You just like leave the door cracked there and surely people at Netflix will pick this up. Right. This is this is obviously going to become hot product. Obviously, I I definitely think so, especially (laughs) after uh, especially after Amazon bungles it. That's right. I, that's, uh, that's another thing I didn't really think through, Dave. Is that now when we talk about the Amazon thing, this is like officially your rival now, right? You know, you're yes. you're in the opposite camp uh, to the Amazon exactly folks. Right. So you are you are uh, professionally uh, uh, positioned in opposition to the Amazon and her, thing. Or professional unfriends. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That's, that's, yeah, it's a factor we'll have to we'll have to take into account moving forward. I, I just it's, it's yeah. I literally didn't even think of that until just now. But that's that's funny. It is. It is kind of. It is sort of funny and uh, and weirdly ironic to think about. So it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. Should we talk about the Silmarillion? Yeah. Especially since we're that. off to a bit of a late start due to me. Um, yeah. No problem. So. So we're excited today because we're we're launching a new experiment, right? Yeah. So this is going to be so this is going to be our first session in which we are taking the kind of new approach uh, due to the much less well episodic nature of the events during this. Uh, you know, we talked about this before. How in earlier seasons, even when there was a lot of sort of ground to cover, like back in season one, right when we were just you know doing the creation of the world. Um, uh, still, there were like a pretty clear sequence of Silmarillion text events, right? Uh, to kind of uh, go, it was it was you know those seasons were more a matter of connecting the dots rather than of really kind of shaping a story. Exactly, if you see the difference there. Um, yep. This season is much more loose. That is, we it's not like we don't have anything from the text, but what we have from the text is much more vague from a story perspective in the sense, you know, it's like tensions rise between the Sindar and the Noldor. Well, okay. Like that's not an event, you know, that's a, uh, that's, that's a, that, that's a story arc. That's a, 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 a long-term development, right? So how are we going to shape those things and how are we going to, uh, how are we going to weave them in together is I feel much more complicated this season. So we're going to be discussing these, 
these large-scale story arcs that we're going to be working into, uh, you know, through multiple episodes uh, over the course, some of these over the course of the entire season. Um, and we're going to be thinking about these separately, and then we'll go back and shape them, having, uh, having thought our way through them. So today, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're, we're going to try to address the, the Sindar Noldor tension, um, uh, building up, of course, to the revelation about the, um, uh, the kinslaying and the ban uh, of Quenya by, uh, uh, by Thingol. And anyway, so we'll be thinking about that. And of course, in conjunction with that, we also have to think about um, Galadriel and Celeborn and their romance, which is going to be uh, directly connected uh, with this plot line, and sort of obviously has implications for the plot line, and needs to be thought about in conjunction with it. I mean, you, you can't very well have a very prominent marriage of a Sindar and a Noldo, you know, in this in this season, uh, without really thinking how that's going to be interacting with that overall story, or even in some ways, uh, you know, potentially like representative of it, or at least um, uh, very influential uh, for the overall story. So. Those are the things we're going to be thinking about today. Who knows if, we f- if we're going to finish that, but that's all right. That's what we're going to be talking about. Um, real quick before we uh, uh, get too deep into it, just a couple of announcements I wanted to start with. Uh, 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 first, one sort of overarching thing for the whole month of December here. Uh, at Signum, we're running a, a holiday special for any time audit gift certificates. If there's a... Um, uh, if there's a, uh, a, a it's hard to buy for person uh, on your you know sort of fantasy fan uh, fantasy or science fiction fan on your on your gift list this year, consider an anytime audit gift certificate a gift certificate to uh, to audit a, a asynchronously any one of the the classes in Signum's catalog. You just give a gift certificate. They pick which class they would like to do best. Uh, they can just pick from any class in our entire archive. You get access to all of the recorded materials of the class, all the print materials that are distributed in the class. Uh, and you also, as an anytime auditor, get access to our library resources and everything else. So it's it's pretty you know you get your own Signum login. It's pretty cool. Um, so, and we're having a, a special price on those. The normal tuition for anytime audit classes is ninety five dollars, uh, and uh, we're the uh, the gift certificates are seventy five dollars for uh, the entire month of December. So just wanted to make sure everybody knew about that because that's a really fun and unusual. Uh, uh, gift option for the holiday season this year. Um, two events that are happening next week that I wanted to share about. One on Tuesday, the December 11th at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we're having our Signum Symposium discussing the spring 2019 courses. So if you're uh, thinking about enrolling or maybe auditing uh, in uh, uh, one of our spring courses in our spring semester, you can learn more about them, find out what's going on at Signum. Uh, you know, if, you have, if you've seen the list and you're kind of curious what, what's going on in that class, you can learn a lot more about it there uh, at that symposium. Uh, and then on Thursday, the 13th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time is the next episode of the Mythgard Movie Club, where they're going to be discussing The Crimes of Grindelwald, the new Fantastic Beasts film, which I haven't yet seen, which I really actually want to see, but um, as I quite enjoyed the first one, actually. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wary of it. <laughs> You're wary of it? Did, uh, yep. did you like the first one? I, I like the first one okay. Um, I, I it, uh, much the same way I like the Hobbit uh, films in that I I like the thought experiment. Right. Was less satisfied with the execution. I sort of I, I'm all in on a. I really love the idea of doing a Dumbledore prequel and mm-hmm. doing all the Grindelwald stuff. 
I don't understand why that had to be done within the, the frame of cramming it into Newt's Commander and Fantastic Beasts. It, it seemed uh, an odd choice to me, I have to admit. I mean, yeah. 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 And uh but I'm all, but with respect to the Dumbledore stuff, I'm also very nervous about JK Rowling continuing to fiddle. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it is true. I mean, I guess one of the things that I would be trepidatious about it, uh, in some ways, is is yeah that like one of the nice things about the fantastic the first Fantastic Beasts film is that it was I don't, I don't want to say rolling free, but kind of like that. I mean, it's because it was not you know part of the main canon. You know, it 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 didn't have. Uh, it didn't seem to show rolling looming over it in the same way that the other films did. It wasn't constrained like the other films were constrained. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, now that we're going back to the, you know, the, the story, which is at least, you know, background to the, to the main books, it's going to be, um, it's fraught. Yeah. More fraught. Put it that way. I agree. I agree. But there's a, um, there's a high chance of of J.K. Rowling deciding, you know, like, oh, I think I'm gonna, which you know, I I, I, I should be the last to complain about retconning, um, since right. Tolkien was a was a was a was a was an avid retconner as well. Um, but you know, I don't know that necessarily all of his retconning was great either, <laughs> especially like in the in the later days when he was really starting to think things through and stuff. Well, yeah, especially some of his later Silmarillion retconning uh, or yeah. perspective retconning that never got, uh, you know, that like which he never really pulled the trigger on, or rather, I should say, which Christopher opted not to put into yeah. the published Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, yep. Yeah. Um, well, well. <laughs> We'll see. Anyway, so we'll see uh, yeah. th- this is a this is a fun movie club session because uh, the the whole concept of the Mythgard Movie Club actually started with uh, a session that was uh, sort of spontaneously run on the Fantastic. It was uh, the uh, the combo uh, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Rogue One session that they did uh, last year um, uh, that. Uh, really kind of inspired the whole undertaking. So it's kind of a return to their roots to come back and do the next fantastic beasts film. So anyway, cool. Um, so those are the announcements anyway. All right. On to our content here. So, okay. So our goals, um, these are the things we need to think about. We need to think about how the Sindar learn about the kinslaying and the impact on their relationship with the Noldor. And so, you know, really, I want to be thinking about this. And, and I, I, would, I would expand this. Some of the other Noldor-centric plot lines uh, listed on the bottom there are things like, how are the Feanorians getting along with each other and stuff? But um, so w- one other example that I would throw out there is Vinyamar, right? So, okay, so Turgon establishes his city in Vinyamar. And one of the things that the published that the Silmarillion says about Vinyamar is that in the land of Vinyamar, under the rulership of Turgon, the Sindar and the Noldor were more like fully blended than they were in any other kingdom of all you know of all the Eldar in in Beleriand. So, how, how does that happen? Like, why does that happen? What is it about Turgon? What is it about Nevrast? How does that go down? And how does that connect to this whole story of uh, uh, of 
the tension between the Sindar and the Noldor. So that's one example I would give of an of a Noldor centric plot line which is directly connected. So it's more it's the heart of the plot, the 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 sort of the driving force of the plot is the kinslaying issue, right? But there's there's mm-hmm. also really we we need to think about the broader political situation really as well, both political and personal situation uh, for the for the people involved. And then of course, speaking of the personal situation, there's the whole Galadriel and Celeborn story, as we talked about before. Um, so those are. Um, uh, those are the overall things. So let's 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 begin focusing on the kinslaying question, and then we can try to uh, kind of broaden it out. I think a bit as we go. But the obviously the heart of the 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 real sort of drama right between the Noldor and the uh, the Sindar is the the kinslaying thing. So okay. Yep. Uh, so thoughts and suggestions, as usual, these are uh, thoughts and suggestions that uh, that Marie Mithluen has uh, uh, put together uh, uh, from both her own thoughts and, and, and uh, things that people have suggested on the discussion boards. Um, so, OK. So at first, the Noldor say only that they've come to fight Morgoth with no mention of their rebellion. Right. So they um, and I, the idea here is that their arrival is so convenient. Right. I mean, like the, you know, Doriath is literally under siege and, 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 you know, the, ha- the, the havens have been destroyed already when the Noldor arrive and drive back the armies of Morgoth. So the, the coincidence of their arrival at just that moment, just exactly when the Sindar needed a catastrophe, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's got to be like the first impulse of the Sindar, really all the Sindar has to be that the arrival of the Noldor is a catastrophe, right? I mean, that the, the, they are the, the the only logical conclusion that they would come to first would be that the Noldor have been sent specifically for their deliverance by the Valar, right? Um, and the Noldor approach to this is to neither confirm nor deny <laughs> this concept, right? Um, so this is one of the first... Um, one of the first questions I have, David, I don't know what you think about this. I think that we need to have a kind of a, we need to establish a sort of a spectrum among the Noldor, right? Some, some of the Noldor are willing actually to lie, right? Some of them are willing to just remain silent and allow fortuitous misunderstandings to continue. And some are uncomfortable even doing that, right? I, th- I think we need to we need to establish a pretty clear spectrum of like how how duplicitous are the Noldor willing to be, and how comfortable are the Noldor about being duplicitous uh, in those uh, in those ways. Um, so, Dave, where do you think Fingolfin would lie on this spectrum? It's tricky. Oh right? boy! On the one hand. I'm tempted to correlate degree of guilt in the kinslaying with willingness to be duplicitous, right? I mean, there's got to be some kind of correlation, some kind of positive correlation there. Uh, but I don't think it can be a simple one for one, right? Um, right. Well, cause, because there is kind of a, <clears throat> you know, the, the, it's, 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 uh, because, the temptation, if you're, yeah, if you committed really bad crimes, you're definitely not going to run around talking about it. Um, right. But I feel like the people who are innocent of most of all of the worst stuff 
are also inclined in some sense not to talk about it because they sort of stand, you know, the temptation is to think, well, I didn't really do that much bad, so I shouldn't be punished for it. Right. Uh, and, but, but the fear is that no one's going to differentiate. Uh, understandably, they're not going to differentiate between the, the guy who killed y- your cousin and the guy who um, stood there and watched them kill your cousin. So, yeah. Um, so I I I, th- I do think like the more the more virtuous characters are going to be less inclined to overtly lie, mm-hmm. but I think they'll be no more inclined to confess. Um, I think right. you know maybe it'd be interesting to have one or two people whose consciences are really bothering them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I sort of feel like maybe there's going to be a party a minimal party line of don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Yeah. It's, you know and 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 a and a, and a rationalization. Look, it's not going to do anyone any good. We have a bigger mission. We're all here to fight Morgoth. We need the Sindar, you know. Like, right. um, we're we're not we wouldn't we won't be helping them by telling them by by stirring things up and t- by telling them and stirring things up because then then we'll fight each other and then Morgoth will destroy us all. So right. So there's definitely a, a greater good argument to be made. Right. Yeah. There definitely there is a greater good argument to be made. I mean, it's 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 hard because on the one hand, you know, I'm tempted to say. You know, the, the, the sort of the obvious rationale here, right, is that you know, just solidarity with the other Noldor. Yep. But that by itself is kind of not enough, I, I feel. I mean, it's not that it isn't a legitimate and strong motivation, but I just I'm not sure that that feels satisfying, especially when we're talking about the children of Finarfin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the people whose mom was like their their own kin were being slain in the kin slaying, right? So why exactly should they choose? Should it be an? It shouldn't it should not be a no brainer for the children of Finarfin to choose solidarity with the Noldor instead of solidarity with the Teleri? I mean, like, like why should they? Why should that take automatic precedence? Um, even if nobody else does, they obviously do have a conflict of interest, you know, a conflict of of uh, of where their loyalties lie. Um, and what's more. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue you raise about sort of the pragmatism, right? Like, we, you know, we don't want we can't we can't, you know, have tension uh, separating the Teleri, you know, the Sindar and the Noldor here because, you know, we need the Sindar to help us fight against Morgoth. But that argument is going to weigh more strongly with some than with others, right? That, I think, has to be a big thing for Fingolfin. Uh, he has to see that big picture, right? He's committed, especially, you know, after that dramatic moment we gave him with the knocking on the gates of, uh, of Angband at the end of season three, right? That scene that you uh, were describing that was, awesome, that was so awesome, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we ha- we've shown Fingolfin to be committed to the defiance of Morgoth, there and so, Fingolfin at least, and I would assume therefore Fingon with him would be thinking in sort of military terms, right? Strategic terms. But I can't imagine that all of them are thinking in military and strategic terms. Turgon, for instance, jumps out as one who is unlikely to be thinking in that way. I mean, Gondolin—the foundation of Gondolin—is not the actions of somebody who is thinking first and foremost of the tactical and strategical position of. 
in Beleriand, right? You don't withdraw yourself into a hidden place which even your allies don't know about and plan never to come out again if your number one objective is how to, you know, uh, contribute to the military situation in Beleriand. So that right, can- but it is it is the thinking of someone concerned with at least to some extent uh, self preservation, right? Like somebody who somebody who thinks somebody like like you know. The, I still feel like he would be inclined to think that he's better off with um, Sindar allies between him and Morgoth than Sindar, who, um, given a chance, might capture him or kill him or his people. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, and but then again, with Turgon, we have that remarkable situation where he is, uh, um, where he has like half of his people, right? Half of the people in his kingdom, both in, in Nevrast and then in Gondolin are Sindar, right? So, um, they're also, it's not that he has personally divided loyalties in the same way that the children of Finarfin do, but I mean, again, half his subjects are Sindar. So he's accountable to them too. He has a relationship with them. So he's, um, to Turgon, it can't be a like Noldor party line, no matter what. Right, I mean that can't be the mm-hmm. way he's thinking, or else all those Sindar wouldn't have settled down in his kingdom and contentedly accepted him as their king. You'd think, right? right. Uh, unless right. he's completely snowing them. So, um, which I don't think is the direction we want to go with Turgon's character. Um, no. Yeah. So, think. So I'm just again. I'm coming back to that spectrum, right, of different kind of attitudes about this whole thing. Um, Let's think about Mithros. What's Mithros? Now, Mithros obviously is the number one in the thinking first about the military position camp, right? More than anybody. Mithros is interested in their capability of fighting against Morgoth, right? Yep. So that that makes sense. Um, uh, and Fingolfin, as I said, I think is in, would be inclined to agree with him. By the way, and this is something we might as well think about a little bit now, Mithros and Fingolfin. So, Mithros abdicates any claim to the high kingship of the Noldor and uh, recognizes Fingolfin as the high king. My question is, how do we handle their relationship after that, like, and I'm thinking in particular, Fingolfin's relationship with my with the Feanorians in general and with Mithros in particular, right? Because you know, Fingolfin comes over uh, with a certain amount of bad feeling towards his brother, right? So he's he's mad at Feanor, he's mad at the Feanorians, but then he comes over and his brother's already dead, right? Feanor's gone, um, and so already I would think it would be a little bit awkward to uh, continue, like, it, that would kind of take the wind out of his sails, right, as far as his anger at the Feanorians are concerned, because, I mean, it was really his brother he was mad at, and his brother's now dead. Um, and then Mithros hands him the high kingship and submits to him, and, and you know, so it, it seems like everything's fine, right? Is Fingolfin grateful to Mithros? Uh, does he, does Mithros earn, does Mithros and Mithros's kind of positions, do they earn sort of extra consideration and weight 
with Fingolfin because like he respects Mithros and is sort of grateful for Mithros's gesture to, you know, keep and establish the peace uh between them. Um Yeah. Yeah. Well, Phil, this is one of the challenges. Phil asks, in the book, do they ever interact after that? No, in the book, we never see them interacting after that. But that's exactly one of the issues with this whole section of the Silmarillion, right? Um, we're the, I get one of the reasons that, as I was saying earlier, that makes this part of the, Silmar- the Silmarillion story so different to talk about is that we have left the time of sequential action, right? And we've entered the period where Tolkien is just telling us, here's the basic state of affairs for several centuries, right? So what actually people did? Like, we have no idea. Did, you know, Fingolfin... They had plenty of time. They had centuries, right? Does Fingolfin pop over, you know, to to Himring once every couple decades, you know, just to, like have crumpets and, and hang out with Mithros? Like, they could. We we don't know, right? Why wouldn't they ever meet? Um, uh, so, anyway, so, and and at the very least, we're going to get interactions that, the, as far as what we're going to depict on the show is concerned, the number one well, not seen, not seen in the uh, in the technical sense. The number one moment that we have to think about uh, is the Merith Adothad, the the uh, the you know the reunion feast uh, that Turgon hosts uh, uh, in Neverest. Um, there, we, we need to sort of very clearly establish what the political situation is, but we can have people meet elsewhere and at other times. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Nick. That Fingen. Sh- uh, so uh, Nick says Fingolfin should be willing to work with Mithros, but not trust him a hundred percent. I agree. Fingolfin should be certainly not totally trusting. I think that he trusts him. I don't know, seventy-five percent, maybe. I mean, more than fifty. Like, I don't think he's just holding Mithros at arm's length, right? Because I think that Mithros would have earned a certain amount of trust from him from the, you know, the very significant gesture that Mytheros made uh, in abdicating. Um, so, but, but, but nevertheless, Nick, I certainly take your point. You know, they're not going to be, he's not going to be just like cheerfully going along with everything Mytheros says. Um, and yes, as Marie reminds us, nobody has forgotten Mandos's words about treachery. It's an important thing to keep in mind. Few of the Noldor are going to trust any of the other Noldor 100%. Concerning which, how much... Do we have any siblings apart from... Non-Feanorian siblings, I should specify. Of course, the Feanorians are totally dysfunctional, but uh, among the children of Finarfin and the children of Fingolfin, do we have tensions within the families? It's so tempting to just think of them as, like, units... Right, um, as if they automatically and completely hold together at every point. Um, do we have any sort of tensions there? Um, Angrod suggests himself, right? The you know the sort of the comparative hothead who finally shoots off and and tells Thingol the whole story, right? Um, you know, we have some evidence in that story of like Finrod and Angrod not. Uh, you know, having a bit of a uh, 
separation of what they're willing to say and how they how they approach things. Um, yeah. Um, right. So, but yeah, I get, and I'm thinking about treachery. Like, do, do they actually get? Does anybody get to the point of like suspecting their own siblings? Is, is you know, one of the things that I'm that I'm wondering about. Um, probably eventually. Yeah, probably eventually. Um, Galadriel. What about her? To what extent do people distrust her? Oh, what's her <clears throat> what's her status among her siblings and cousins? Essentially, I, I think um, I think one one fun thing to do uh, would be to leverage would be to to sort of would be you know as sort of a hat tip to Tolkien's. Um, Galadriel three and four and five right, and twelve right. um, uh, revisions um, to to maybe make make them um, jealous and maybe not a small part or uh, suspicious and not a small part jealous like the, the, to have at least some of the the Noldor the sons of Feanor and stuff to kind of not like her but mm-hmm. have it be because they sort of look and they see that she she you know that she kind of there's something special about her she has sort of a, a special they perceive some special potential or destiny for her right right and most of the Noldor are not really constituted in such a way that perceiving that is going to lead them to dislike her out of envy right um, people like Kurafin would think that way but most of the rest of them aren't going to be like that really right they're not going to resent her because she's great. They might distrust what she could become, essentially. One of the things that occurs to me is that on the one hand, the Thanorians are going to dislike Goadriel because they're going to remember that she dissed their dad, right? Um, So Goadriel is not going to be well-liked by the Thanorians. But at the same time, I'm thinking that some of the other Noldor... um, some of her closer, well, I guess they're all like the sons of Fingolfin are just as close. Well, no, they're not because of the half brother thing. But anyway, whatever. I think some of the rest of them are going to at least, if not actively distrust her, be a little wary of her because they see her as the one who is most likely to become like Feanor, essentially. Um, I mean, she's got to be on the short list of who is like the next Noldo who could go bad, right? Um, uh, who could and and even the fact that she is in line to like achieve greatness right and that they would be aware that she is great and could be really great i mean that's that was Feanor too right um so again i don't think it means distrust but there there could be some there could be some concern and yeah, Marie, exactly. She moves to Doriath, right? So she seems to separate herself from her kin, and that's not a good look. She marries a Cinda, and one of the Cinda who's closest to, uh, w- one of the Sindar who's closest to Thingol, right? The guy who is most, you know, the, 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 uh, 
the one who has banned the the you know the the Noldor and banned banned Quenya, um, and the way that she's you know doing her like I'm the disciple of Melian thing, right? That could be seen as a red flag, right? You know that she's again she's aggrandizing herself. She's there's Galadriel moving up in the world. What's next for Galadriel, right? And I'm not suggesting there need to be like a conspiracy against her, that there should be, um, you know, people who are actively speaking against her or anything like that. I'm just, I'm thinking this season is all about kind of playing the long game and in, in the development of our uh, character relationships and what characters think and how they're connected to each other and what they think of each other and things. And I've got to think that there, there, there needs to be this kind of, this kind of uneasiness. And speaking of long game, of course, one of the things that we're doing, um, all of this is in part in the interest of setting up Galadriel's speech to Frodo in the Lord of the Rings. Right. I mean, the moment when she says, uh, you know, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen like that. That this that is like we should see in that moment, like the fulfillment of like what has been looming in the background behind her, what has been a potential for her uh, at mm-hmm. times an act of temptation. Some p- times when she's moved, I mean, there will be times in the Second Age when she seems to be going there, right? When she seems to be moving in that direction, only to pull back or to be pulled back from it. I'm thinking here of the like little empire that she helps to establish in Eregion and with Casa Doom and stuff, right? Um, there could be some definite concerns that she's empire building and, and moving toward, you know, in her opposition to Sauron and stuff. So anyway, there's long game, long game with Galadriel, right? And so planting the seed of like, this is a person whom, who really could go bad. I mean, she is on even though people like her, even though people still trust her, she has to be high on the list, right? On the short list of who is likeliest to fall among all of the leaders and, and become evil of all of the leaders of the, of the, of the Noldor non-Feanorian camp. Um, so, and I think that would be really fun to, uh, to set up. Yeah. I like that idea a lot. <clears throat> So, yeah, Tony suggests uh, some might also see the marriage as a power move. Yeah. Um, ooh, Marie, that's a really interesting suggestion. Marie suggests Arathel as a sort of antagonist to Galadriel. Um, the two female grandchildren of Finway who are very, very different from each other and... Um, aren't really kindred spirits with each other. Because it would be nice if we have anybody articulate concerns about Galadriel. It would be nice to have somebody who is not a Feanorian to say them, right? That would be interesting. I mean, I'm a little bit reluctant to take the only other female character and have that female character bash the other female character. Um... And she's not the only other female character, but I mean, you see what I mean. It is, it is an interesting angle, though. Um, did we have? See, so Nick and Marie, you guys can remind me. In our previous script outlines, did we have? Did we show Goadriel as being particularly close? 
with anyone in particular? Did we... It's, I mean, I'm thinking among the other Nolda, among her siblings and cousins and half-cousins, uh, back in Valinor in Season 2 and then in Season 3, did we... Um, did we? Yeah, Marie, I agree. If we if we frame it as Arathel expressing concern or worry, um, we don't want that. We don't want we don't want to like make it sound like you know like a cat fight or something like that. It, it should be she shouldn't be peevish about Galadriel. She should be uh, concerned. She should be one who sort of sees clearly the potential. Like, that's what I want, right? I want somebody who can has sufficiently penetrating insight both into Goadriel's character and into how these things work, right, in order to be able to say, you know, there is not no reason for concern here <laughs> with with Goadriel. Um Oh, she was close with her cousins in Aqualande. Okay, right. Well that's that's fine. Um so Marie, that's excellent fodder for her uh uh, loneliness and isolation, and Marie, why she would impose even more isolation on herself in a kind of punitive fashion, right? She holds herself aloof from everybody, so she's in Doriath, but she holds herself aloof from everybody in Doriath because she like feels she doesn't deserve, you know, friends and confidants because she betrayed her friends and confidants in Alqualonde, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, Ooh, Tony suggests Idril. That's fascinating. That's a really interesting idea, Tony, because there's one of the Idril's character is certainly going to be associated in the later Gondolin times, like in the Maeglin times, with a semi-prophetic insight, right? Uh, she's the one who sees the end coming. She's the one who insists they prepare for it. Uh, the refugees from Gondolin are able to escape because Idril and Idril alone uh, uh, saw it all coming. Right. Um, so the idea that Idril and we do need to introduce Idril. We had pediatric Idril right in season three. Um, with her mother dying and everything and the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Um, Idril is one of those characters that we do need to reintroduce as an adult character in this season. Um, so we do have, we do need to accomplish some stuff with Idril's character. Not much. She doesn't have to be a major figure or anything. Um, and we could do it just visually like, Hey, look, there's Idril. Remember her? Now she's all grown up. Um, but actually giving her, giving her a giving her a significant role in in you know within sort of the uh Noldor uh you know polity here uh and uh you know interpersonal dynamics would be interesting um Idril and Aravel would be pretty close right you'd think Idril and Aravel would be pretty close Why do we think that? <clears throat> well, I mean, they're going to be living together in Gondolin. And I'm thinking that because I'm thinking it gives some really interesting angles when Maeglin comes in, right? If Arivel was her favorite aunt, well, only aunt, but anyway, uh, you know, if, if the two of them were really close um, and she needs, a, she needs a surrogate mother figure at this point, right? She's lost her mother. So if Arivel kind of steps into that 
quasi-maternal role with Idril. And then Maeglin comes comes in, and Arthel dies to protect him and everything in this like tragic and and climactic moment. Um, Idril would have very conflicted feelings. To, I mean, she like Maeglin is creepy, and she'd be well aware of how creepy he was, especially uh, when she began to feel how inappropriate were Maeglin's feelings towards her personally. But at the same time, like, he is the son of her, you know, so he's like a brother figure to her, which, of course, makes the whole sexual attraction thing even creepier Um, and really kind of plays up the, you know, incestuous angle, which is explicitly, uh, you know, invoked there in the Silmarillion about uh, Maeglin and Idril um, and why Idril was so uncomfortable and creeped out by him. Um... So, uh, anyway, so th- this is why I'm thinking it would be good for Idril and Arthel to be close, because it would create some really interesting psychological and character dynamics between Idril and Maeglin down the road. Um, and we could have a, we could have a scene with our, where Arthel and Idril together talk about Galadriel, um, That that could be. What would they? What would they say? Well, about their observations of like so. We're gonna need down the road to have somebody observe. Like somebody's got to notice that Galadriel is still unhappy. I mean, she's. We're setting her up to be one of the most sort of emotionally scarred uh, of all of the Noldor by the Kinslaying. Um, the one who is most haunted personally by the Kinslaying. Um, maybe others are too, but we're not going to spend as much time with them. So she, she is our, uh, she is our, our primary emotionally scarred person by the kinslang. Um, but she's Galadriel. I mean, I don't think she's going to be openly mopey and like, you know, breaking down, weeping and running out of rooms or anything like that. Right. I mean, we're not going to have her, you know, she's, she yet remains Galadriel, right? So she's going to be able to hold it in in public, right? She's going to be able to put on a good show. She's going to start perfecting that, like, I am the, like, placid, wise elf queen kind of air that she's, you know, going to gonna gonna do so well later on. Um, but somebody's got to notice, right? We, I, I, I feel like it would be good to have a conversation which really draws the... Uh, uh, you know the viewer's attention to her situation and helps to. Cause we're gonna. I think we're gonna want a little exposition, right? Even if for no other reason than it's been a long time since the kinslaying, and we need to uh, remember exactly what's at stake there for Galadriel and Idril. Of course, um, uh, was a kid at the time, right? And so might not really know. So it would be. Um, it would be very natural for her to be asking questions of Arathel about you know uh, so Arathel could understand right she knows Goadriel well enough to to kind of get why this was so hard for her I mean you know she was like watched her mother die and she was like there and it was like enormously conflicted and you know she feels like she you know got drawn into a terrible situation and made a bad choice and uh, you know, blames herself for the death of her own mother and all these things. And Idril is not going to know or really understand all of these things because she 
was too little at the time, right? Um, so we can, I would think that this conversation might be a good framing mechanism for that. And Idril could express if Arathel is essentially showing sympathy for Goadriel and expressing concern about, like, that she needs healing, right? You know, concern about her state in that sense. Not concern that she's going bad, but concern that all is not well with Goadriel, right? Um, then Idril could be the one who expresses the insight about how she's in, she Goadriel is in a, a kind of a, a potentially dangerous situation, right? Um, she, Idril, could perceive Goadriel's greatness. I mean, I think that uh, that could even be one of the you know initial starting points of the conversation is that she sees, like, you know, Goadriel, she's not seen Goadriel for a long time. They've been separated, as elves do, right, for like, I don't know, what, decades? A century? How long has it been? Who knows, right? Uh, since they hung out together. Um, but, you know, Idril and Arathel have been living in Nevrost with Turgon. Um, they, uh, so she, she perceives, right, Goadriel, that, like, Goadriel's great. I mean, she, she might even say something like, you know, in her, like, pseudo-prophetic way or semi-prophetic way, right? Um, Goadriel is going to become the greatest of all of the elf queens. Um, you know, she... She is one of the greatest of all of the grandchildren of Finway, right? Um, uh, she might even say that she is the greatest, um, you know, and has, the, had, or at least has the potential to be the greatest of all of the, grand, the grandchildren of, of Finway. Um, and then they talk about, you know, but, you know, but like, but there's something wrong with her, right? Like, so, so why is she so sad? You know, what, what, why is she... Um, uh, why is she so much more sad than everybody else? And Arathel explains, and then, uh, you know, maybe Idril is like, she better be careful, and, you know, we might kind of want to watch out because she, you know, to, to express the danger that she uh, that she is in. Um, yeah, Maria, I'm thinking of a general Merith Adderthed contact context for this. Um, for this conversation. But kind of, you got to be careful of timing, though. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, let's go back to the broader question of... Uh, the broader question of Noldor relations. Among the non-Feanorians... Among... Who are the most... The two that are most outspokenly pro-Feanorian, right, um, are Aravel and Fingen, right? Anybody else? Who would be most anti? Engrod. Who else would be most resolute? Turgon. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So Turgon would be most anti- Turgon and Angrad, Fingon and Arathel would be the most the the two non-Feanorians most likely to speak up in support of the Feanorians and the Feanorian position among the rest of them. Um, among the children of Finarfin, 
Right, so we've got Finrod, Angrod, Ignor, and Galadriel. Among the four... Well, <laughs> we still haven't solved the Orodreth problem. Um, uh, yeah. Hmm. Never mind. Okay, let's 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 just keep going. I I don't want to get distracted on Nora Dreth right now. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I continue to not want to think about that. Um, okay. Um, of the f- the children of Finarfin, who's most conflicted? So, who is most? There's because again, I think that we have to express. I find it hard to. I, I I would have to dispend disbelief a lot to believe that none of the children of Finarfin, right, who saw their own kin slain and they didn't participate, right, so they don't bear the personal guilt of it that Galadriel does. But of the other, so Galadriel's a special case. But of the other three. I can't believe that all three of them are like, we are 100% Noldor party line, no problems. Like, they have got to be saying, like, we owe at least as much loyalty to the Teleri. You know, this is, uh, like, we're we're almost as closely related to Thingol as we are to, you know, uh, uh, Thingolfin. So, um, and not quite, but close, right? So, um, uh, what, um, who, sh- where, sh- where should we find? Somebody needs to express that. We need to show some, somebody, one of those children of Finarfin, very actively torn, like wanting to tell, wanting to come clean, wanting to confess, wanting to seek absolution, wanting to, uh, you know, feeling like he is betraying his kin in, you know, in 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 towing the party, the the Noldor party line. Somebody's got to be there, right? Be doing that. Um, so, okay, a bunch of people are mentioning Finrod um, as a possibility. Tony suggests Finrod. Um, uh, and, right. Murray suggest, says, though, that Finrod has to show leadership, and I agree. Um, we certainly see, in the text, we see Finrod as being very cautious, right? Um, though in some ways, he's one of the ones who holds the Noldor party line most firmly, right? I mean, even when the truth is coming out, you know, he's like, I'm distancing myself from this, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, Ellen, great, great questions. No, Ellen, I'm seeing your questions. They're just they're reading through a whole bunch of comments at once. Um, so, Ellen's concern is that to like Fingolfin, their high king, is a kinslayer, right? And so, for any of them to betray or to think about betraying the secret of the Noldor is for them to betray their high king, right? Which you know is like an act of treason. The number one thing that I would say about that is that I don't think that kingship among the elves means exactly what kingship in a human 
nation means. Dave, do you think elves have a concept of treason? Exactly. I mean, disloyalty, yes. Betrayal, sure. But treason? You mean, you mean like the distinction between... You mean the distinction between kind of uh, more informal disloyalty and like actual political treason? Yes. Yes. I don't know. I guess to have treason, you'd need politics. Yeah. And politics, and and this is, you know, we need Dom Nardi here. Uh, Dominic Nardi is a a political science uh, PhD, and I've heard him give several... Uh, talks about sort of he he loves to apply sort of modern political science uh, analytical tools to Middle Earth politics, which is which often has some really interesting effects. And one of the things that he's I've heard him speak very uh, interestingly and persuasively about is that you know one thing that you have to acknowledge when you think about the political situation is that immortality changes politics enormously right like you cannot underestimate the impact of immortality on the political situation right um i mean really from really from 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 top to bottom um anyway um What does it mean? Let's 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 come at this question from another direction. Um, what does it mean to be High King of the Noldor? What does it mean? What does that relationship imply? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, let's just stick with that. What does it mean to be High King? What does that like? What's the charter? You know, of the High King. Like, what are the rights and privileges appertaining unto the title of High King of the Noldor? Um, it certainly makes him the overall leader, right? But we never really see Fingolfin asserting leadership in the sense of domination, right? I'm going to tell everybody what to do. We, we do, do we ever see him doing that? I don't think we ever see him doing that, right? It's certainly a sign of respect. Um, now, Nick, I agree with you. Well, I'm agreeing with the implication of what you're saying, that Feanor seemed to have a different sense of what it meant to be High King, right? Uh, Feanor's description of High Kingship was much more absolute, right? Feanor wanted and demanded absolute obedience um, and wanted to be the absolute boss. Um, One of the things that I think that we established in Season 3 is that Fingolfin is a very different kind of leader. On the one hand, his own will helped to keep the host of the Noldor together in their crossing of the Helcaraxa, and we had a lot of scenes, remember, where people were nearing despair and, uh, uh, you know, dying of exposure and starvation on the Helcaraxa and everything, and it was Fingolfin who kept them going and, and, and who led them on. So he is definitely a leader to the Noldor. Um, but I guess it's one of the things that I keep coming back to um, is that clearly kingship among the elves means leadership but I don't know that it has with it a kind of um, uh, a kind of the kind of authority like executive power right Um, the ability to would they pass and enforce a bunch of laws? They would serve as judges, clearly, right? I mean, I think that 
would surely happen if there were disputes. They would help to settle disputes, which would mean, I think that would be in the job description of the High King of the Noldor, right? If there were disputes among the other leaders of the Noldor, Fingolfin would arbitrate. That's got to be in his job description, you'd think, right? Um, so Fingolfin would be concerned about some of these issues that we've just been, you know, talking about today, about the, you know, the, the relations, you know, who's... Uh, uh, how are the leaders of the Noldor relating to each other? This would be one of the primary things that uh, Fingolfin would be thinking about. Um, but yeah, see, Nick, exactly. I don't think they would need a whole lot of laws. I can't imagine Elvish kingdoms having like a really intricate law code. Like, are there any Elvish lawyers? I don't think there are, right? Do elves need solicitors? I, I don't think they do. I really don't. Um, and... Um, uh, Yeah, see, Ellen, that's a really cool point. So uh, Ellen is thinking about Finrod's reaction when he's, you know, when uh, the people of Nargothrond rise up, right, and and uh, uh, respond against him. He does accuse them of uh, being disloyal. But see, again, that's it's about like leadership and loyalty. Yes. I, I definitely think that leadership and loyal, loyalty are involved. Um, but that's not the same thing as... Tr- like, they were his people. And they... He was leading them and they wouldn't support him. That was bad. That was wrong. But I don't know that it's... Treason, exactly, in like a modern political sense. Like, that they have betrayed the state. Um, that they have become criminals, exactly. They, they, they did wrong. Like, what he did was wrong. And he casts down his crown, showing that, like, he's, you know, he's acknowledging that they've basically unkinged him, right, by their refusal to follow his leadership. Um, and, that, again, that's wrong in them to do that. I'm not arguing that it isn't. But I am arguing that I don't think it means exactly what like that would mean in a modern human society. Um, do we have, can anyone think of any examples of elf laws? There's the ban, of course, Thingol's ban, obviously, which is a, a central element in our story this season. Can anyone think of any other concrete even examples that one, like, of an actual that's like law? The- even that one, that's like the first time I've ever thought of that as a law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 like a law in that, I mean, he decrees like everyone shall obey this, de- this, this decree and there will be consequences if you don't. Right. And so in that way, it's like a law. It's, it's at least like a law. He, now, and in, in another sense, it's not a law. Right. Because it is he's deliberately imposing it on people who are not under his authority, right? Um, so in that sense, you know, you can't exactly pass a law uh, for foreign powers in, like, the citizens of foreign states, right? Um, so in that way, it's not like a law, but it's law-ish, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Marie, thinking about Nargothrond here, says that, like, the people of Nargothrond commit rebellion, but that's not necessarily treason. It's not necessarily the same. Um Yeah, Tony, good. The laws of Gondolin about people not leaving. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
Um, we do get laws and customs of the Eldar. Yes, yes, that gets de- that does get developed a bit, though we. Yeah. <laughs> and they outlaw polygamy in retrospect, right? As everybody agrees, that was a bad idea, and we shouldn't do that again. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, So, one thing I find myself quibbling on, or wanting to quibble on, and it's not a substantive disagreement exactly, it's, a, it's more of a qualitative disagreement. Um, murder. Like, yes, murder is... Everyone agrees that murder is wrong. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, even Kurofin admits that murder is illegal. Well, yes... But and I don't think that's the issue. People agree that murder is wrong, and that you shouldn't do it, right? Um, but um, um, that it is a deviation from the legal code. Again, I, I'm not arguing in substance. Like yes, like murder is murder is is not something we do, right? Um, everybody that, that that people acknowledge that, but I think it's a significant difference. That is, I, I think that the the gap there between murder is illegal and murder is wrong. The other thing that I would point out is that there's um, uh, there's a difference. Um, uh, there's a difference between law and custom as well, right? But that's another thing. When you're immortal, especially when you are immortal and you're, you know, there, there, we, you know, we see this general elvish tendency to not change, right? And to even want to resist change. Uh, so customs that have been held by these same people for thousands of years certainly begin to look like laws. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard. I mean, I think that what I'm arguing, or not, not exactly arguing against, what I'm wanting to establish here is how elves think about this. I acknowledge that the word law is used. Like, for instance, when Turgon says to Eol, Ellen, as you say, by the laws of the Eldar, I may not slay you at this time, right? But what does Turgon mean when he says that, right? I'm not convinced. I mean, they use the word king, too, right? And I'm not convinced that when an elf uses the word king, they mean the same thing that a human means when they talk, like a, 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 a human king means like in Rohan or in Gondor when they talk about the, or that even those two mean the same thing as each other as what they mean when they talk about their king, 
right, and what it means to have a king and what their relationship with their king is like. What I'm trying to tease out is the nature of their society and the nature of their interactions. It has a, and again, it's it's even when they use the word law, I am not convinced. I'm doing a bad job of articulating this. Okay, Dave, I think I got it. I think I've realized my stumbling point here. Here's my stumbling point. When we talk about the law, right, if one modern human being says to another, no, you can't do that. That's against the law, right? Or no, I can't do that. That would be illegal. The way that we're thinking and talking about the law is as something that exists kind of like outside and above ourselves, right? It, was esta- it wasn't established by us, right? It was established by our, you know, ancestors, right? These have been the laws, and the laws can be changed and modified, and they are changed and modified. Um, and yet, you know, there is, this, there is this sense of, like, the law that has been handed down to us, right? And the code into which we are born and under which we have to live. Elves wouldn't feel that way. Law would never work that way, even for later generations of elves. Um, and certainly not for Turgon, certainly not for Kurafin, certainly not for Fingolfin, right? They would just wouldn't have that relationship uh, to, um, to law, right? Um, even when they're talking about the laws of the Noldor, um, there there is still a sense in which what that like when 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 people say um, uh, the laws and sorry yes I apologize Ellen I realize you were uh, that was uh, my slip early I realize you were quoting Kurafin not uh, uh, not Turgon before about not being able to slay Ale at this time. Um, uh, Anyway, I let's take that example, right? When Kurafin says that to Aeol, I do not believe that what he means, and I believe it of Kurafin less than I believe it of almost, any, of almost anybody else, I do not believe that when Kurafin says, I may not slay you at this time, he is saying, dude, my hands are tied. Like, personally, I want to off you right now. Like, and if I weren't restrained by this code that I have to live by, right? That I've agreed as a citizen I must comply with or else there will be, you know, I could be incarcerated or executed or whatever, um, uh, you know, fined or, 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 or what, you know, if not for the fact that I am compelled as a citizen to live under this code, I would act this way. But since I am, I will comply with it. I, that is, that can, that is not Kurafin's attitude. I cannot believe that that is Kurafin's attitude there, right? So when he says, I may not, you know, I, I may not slay you at this time, right? He is, um, uh, and I know, I know he greatly wished to slay Aeol. I get that. I get that, right? But, um, but wherein lies the conflict? Again, I, I think it's pretty clear that, I think it's pretty clear he feels a conflict between how okay. okay so what is the law right the law is how they act what higher authority does kurafin 
acknowledge. Is Kurafin worried about the high kingship of Fingolfin? Who's he going to get in trouble with? If he, if he were to kill Ael, what are the consequences for, that Kurafin feels? Right? What are the consequences? Um, what motivation, or to think about it in a different angle, what motivation does he have to comply with a law that he really, really doesn't want to comply with? Right? I don't think it is his fear of external consequences. And again, that's what, like, but it's illegal means, right? Is there will be consequences. I want to do this. I even think it might be right to do this. Uh, I, I saw, Nick, you were talking about, you know, the difference between different kinds of, like, uh, legality versus morality and things which are against the law but are not necessarily not necessarily in every circumstance immoral, right? Like speeding is the example that uh, that Nick gives, right? Um, Kurafin might feel totally justified in killing Aeol, right? So why doesn't he do it? There, to me, I, in my mind, there's only two reasons why Kurafin would not kill Aeol when he really wants to, right? One would be fear of some outside circumstance. I don't think I could get away with it. I would be breaking the law. There are consequences for breaking the law, and I'm going to get in trouble if I do it. That would be one reason for him to restrain himself because something is illegal, even though he really wants to do it, and himself doesn't believe it's wrong. I cannot believe that Kurofin is like... is Well, anyway, okay. So that's one thing. The second thing is an internal conflict, right? That he believes in the law. That the law is itself, this law that he is citing is an expression of his own moral code as well. Right? That he, he acknowledges this is the way things are. This is what is right. You're not supposed to. We are not. So, so that what he is expressing is less a, sadly, I must comply with this external legal code, even though in this situation I disagree with it. Right? Because I don't want to get in trouble if he's not saying that, but rather expressing what is actually an internal moral conflict on his part, right? Part of me really wants to kill you, right? I really want to kill you. But another part of me says, you know, killing him right now would not be a good thing. And Kurofin has better impulse control than some of his siblings, right? Um, uh, Yeah, Marie, exactly. He would like to kill Ale, but he considers murder to be different uh, from killing someone in battle. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, Ellen says, yeah, hey, Ale, give me an excuse and I will kill you. Yeah, exactly. If he could maneuver it into, into a position where he could reconcile himself to it, I think he would. But anyway, do you see, do you see what I mean? Do you see the, 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 the cultural thing I'm trying to tease out here? It's that... I don't want to get in trouble, and so therefore I'm complying with this cultural system that I've been born into. That's what I don't think the elves would ever do, would ever think. Um, uh, and and again, it's so. You know, Ellen, back to your other example, back to Finrod, right? Uh, and Finrod throwing his crown down again. I don't think that what he's saying is like you guys. Like you're doing it wrong, right? You've you've like you're supposed to be good subjects, and you've you've committed treason, and you're guilty of crimes. Now, no, he's like you've betrayed me, right? I was your leader. I, I'm still your leader. I'm trying to lead you. You've betrayed me. Like you're rebelling against me. That is a betrayal of of our relationship, and so I'm out, right? Um, because I have no other choice. 
Um, so anyway, I mean, that's, uh, I think it's more, this has big implications, I think, politically, as we think this through. Because again, I want to come back to the question of what does it mean to be king? Right. And this is why I don't think we I think we have to be very cautious. I always think we have to be really cautious about uh, applying human stuff to elven stuff, even when Tolkien uses the same vocabulary like king and law. Right. He uses those words, totally uses those words. But I don't think they mean the same thing for elves that they mean for everybody else. Um, So. So again, so what does it mean to be king and what does it mean to be high king? More than anything else, um, Phil, I would call it not necessarily a translation error, but a translation issue. Absolutely. Like, what other word, word are you going to use, right? Here you are, you're, you're Tolkien or you're Bilbo, right? You're Bilbo and you're trying to translate these elvish stories, right, uh, for the Shire, Right. If this is our this is the the sort of textual context of the Silmarillion documents. Right. What word do you use? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ellen, that's a great question. Do the Noldor give Fingolfin oaths of loyalty when he's crowned? Ellen votes yes, that they should give oaths. I wouldn't be totally anti-oath, but at the same time, you got to think there's there got to be some kind of oath-shy folks among the Noldor, right? You know, if if uh, if somebody, uh, you know, at the crowning of Fingolfin says, hey, I know, let's all swear oaths to him. You've got to think there's somebody who's going to be like, I'm uncomfortable right now with the oath swearing, <laughs> right? Can we, can, can we not do that? Right? Can we, uh, is this, does anyone else see how this could possibly backfire? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't, I'm tempted to go the other direction. I'm tempted to say that the oath thing is one of the signs of Feanor's deviance. Like, the hey, swear oaths to obey me and like and what is like that that's that was a red flag with Feanor um, that they shouldn't need to swear oaths and he shouldn't demand it because again think about this from the other direction right we've got Fingolfin now right so Mithros says oh no you should be high king and Fingolfin yeah, so then what does he do he's like so now Swear oaths of obedience to me, or oaths of what exactly? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree, Murray. There has to be acknowledgement, right? There has to be buy-in from the other Noldor. It has to mean something. It can't just be pro forma. It can't be totally pointless. But this is exactly why I'm trying to tease this out. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure this out. And after this, by the way, I have another related question, which is what exactly is Thingol's political position with the rest of the Sindar, and how do they see that, and how does that differ from the Noldor situation? But first things first, um, the Noldor situation. Um, uh, Lincoln suggests just instead of swearing an oath, they could all affirm their loyalty to the High King. Yes, but loyalty in what sense loyalty in what sense 
Because you've got to think that the loyalty that is owed and even sworn to the kings, like Ellen again, as you say, the people of Nargothrond to Finrod, right? Um, that's got to be different from the oaths, if oaths they swear, <clears throat> or, you know, the loyalty that those lords themselves, like the Finrod himself has to Fingolfin, or had at that point. Um, Yeah. Is loyalty a word they would use? Of course, because you'd know what the root of loyalty is, right? Law! I mean, that's what the loy stands for <laughs> from French. So, um, do they even use that word? Should we use that word? Hmm. Okay, let's see. Nick, I like that. Okay, Nick says, recognition of his martial authority and judicial supremacy. And Nick, I think it was you who said earlier, and I apologize, the uh, comments have been coming fast and furious here, so I know I'm not getting everybody's comments. I'm trying to uh, uh, trying to get as many of them as I can here. Um, but Nick, I think it was you earlier who said that high king sounds like primary, primarily a military position. I, I too, Nick, am primarily tempted to equate... Um, hiking with commander-in-chief essentially, right? Like, when we're in the field against Morgoth, Fingolfin is in charge, right? Because okay. there's got to be somebody who is the the over-general of the armies, right? Um, so Fingolfin is in charge. Um, and judicial supremacy, Nick, yeah, there's got to be somebody who can arbitrate. If there is, should there be a dispute, you know, what are the odds that there's going to be a dispute among the leaders of the Noldor? Um, but should there be a dispute, it's to, it's it's there's got to be somebody who can who who can arbitrate you know who can say all right let's sort this out people um yeah um and so therefore ellen the meaning of mithro subordinating himself to fingolfin would be in both of those contexts he is a uh yielding to the judicial supremacy of Fingolfin. So he's saying, which, which is important because he's saying, look, if, if there are disagreements even among the Feanorians, conceivably, right? And certainly between the Feanorians and the people of Fingolfin, Fingolfin now has the right of arbitration, which would be a big deal. And Kurofin would find that a very big deal, right? Kurofin would be very reluctant to yield that because he knows there's going to be issues. He plans to make issues, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of conspiring going on there with Kurofin. He's going to, he has plans. And if they, the Feanorians, do not retain, do not retain um, uh, the, um, you know, that kind of arbitration authority, you know, if they have to, if they agree to yield, uh, to the arbitration of one of the, you know, the guy on the other side, that's a big concession. And similarly, and I think in some ways even bigger from the point of view of the oath of Feanor, right. Um, they're not in charge of the war anymore, right. They're not the, you know, Mithros is not, you know, a, a son of Feanor is not the leader of the armies of the Noldor against Morgoth. And that, I would think, from the Feanorian perspective, would be, or from the, certainly from the point of view of the Oath, the biggest deal of all. Um, so I think this is what the Feanorians would feel was at stake when the, the High Kingship is yielded to Fingolfin. Um, see, now, 
Helen, legislative authority is exactly what I am not willing to give him. I don't think so. Uh, at least, again, it just, it doesn't, that doesn't feel right to me. I, that does not jive with my sense of Elvish culture. And I just, I don't think it would exactly work that way. Um, yeah. Um, Ellen says, would it mean that Fingolfin has Mythros's back against rebellious siblings? Yeah, if it came to it. See, I don't think Mythros will go there. I don't think, you know, if Mythros is having an issue with Kurifin or Karanthir, right, I don't think he's going to go to Fingolfin and ask Fingolfin to arbitrate. But could he? Yeah, sure. Uh, again, I don't, I don't think he would. Um, but, but I think that he could, right? Uh, uh, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Nick was saying the same thing, that intra-Fanorian conflict is handled by Mythros in-house. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Again, I, I, I don't think they would ever do that. But again, in theory, in theory, they could. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, decentralization, each one of these realms is a realm in itself. And there is no way that Fingolfin as High King is going to see himself as, like, supervising all of the, you know, like, that he's got to ratify whatever they say. And, like, they're all in charge of themselves, right? But see, that's the thing. I think... I think that the elves are more like that in general anyway um, I don't think that any of the elves it just it doesn't feel right I think the elves are more generally anarchical um, they have affiliations right they hold together um, they stay together in friendship uh, and uh, but not out of a sense of duty, exactly. Not because they have to, not because the law says they, they should. Um, I don't think they have to swear oaths in general in order to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree, Marie. In practice, what it would come down to is Mytheros ruling the Feanorians and Fingolfin arbitrating between the Feanorians and his own people. Absolutely in practice, that would be how it would go. Um, is that how everyone would understand it formally? You know, Marie, it might even be. Like, we could see a sticking point, right? Where um, I can imagine this as a conversation between Mytheros and his brothers in the beginning, right? Where Mytheros tells them what he's going to do. And his brothers are like, we are not swearing anything. To F- like, I am not going to agree to obey Fingolfin. He is not my king, right? Um, you as our eldest brother, you as the heir of our father are going to, like, you know. So but, so basically, Marie, Mythros would be instituting essentially a compromise, saying, okay, you guys obey me, right? But I'm going to obey him, right? I'm, I'm going to agree to work with Fingolfin. Um, but that they, they don't they don't agree, like, they, they, you know, his brothers never agree to sort of go along. Um, uh, see, I, okay, 
But Ellen, again, I'm still, I'm just, I'm still disagreeing with you about the whole vision of how elvish culture works. I think is the problem. Um, so Ellen was just saying, but they have to obey Mithros, and he's going to obey Fingolfin, so they're still stuck. Yeah, except for the word "half." That's that's the part I disagree with. They don't have to obey Mithros. They don't have to. Um, they generally are going to, right? Um, but they don't. Again, "have to" says that there's some external thing that's that's that's. Uh, ruling over them, right? That they must comply with. There's only one reality in the Feanorian world, which is that, operates like that, right? An external reality that you are compelled to obey and that's the oath of Feanor, right? And honestly, I think this is I think this is one of the things that's really informing my resistance to to law and uh, this kind of like obli- obligatory civil obedience and uh, and more oaths and things, because I want the oath of Feanor to feel like a violation, to feel unnatural, like it is it is deviant, it is it is not how things are supposed to operate. It's not just a bad oath, right? Like that's how things are normally supposed to operate. It's just that that one that one's ugly, right? The terms of it are 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 bad. Um, so it's not like a bad law among the laws, right? Um, no, I, I, I think it should feel different. Like the constraint, which eventually, of course, Mithros and Maglor are going to feel weighing very heavily upon them, and which in our construction, Amros is already feeling weighing very heavily upon him. The constraint that they have to abide by the oath that they've sworn should grate at them. That's not how it works normally. Even... Other and I agree that Turgon, for instance, is 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 a lawmaker in Gondolin, right? But even there, I don't think like I don't think that Turgon makes it an, an elaborate legal code. It just means there are customs that he imposes. Like it's part of the Gondolin package, right? He comes to his people and he's like, "I've got a situation here, right? Um, let's go. So here's my vision. Here's my plan. Let's make Gondolin. Let's move there." I propose the following things. We're going to move to Gondolin. We're going to keep it secret. We're going to move to Gondolin. And when we get there, nobody's going to leave. And then this is, this is what we're going to do. And all the people are like, you know, you're the king. Let's do that. You're, you're our leader. We agree. We're going to follow you. But I, again, I don't think that this means he's writing an elaborate judicial code that everyone's like, oh, great. Yeah, we've got to abide by Turgon's, all of Turgon's laws. Um, anyway, the oath works like that. The oath looms over them and they feel it feels different, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you do get yeah, where strain enters in to this situation, Ellen, is with outsiders, right? So Gondolin is a classic example and when you've got outsiders who come in like Ale, right? When Ale comes and and uh, and and they're like, "Well, you're not allowed to leave because that's the law," and he's like, "Dude, what the heck, right? I didn't I didn't vote for you, right?" Uh, when when that's when that's and, and notice even Ale's attitude itself. I don't think that in saying that Ale is being deviant and weird. Um, uh, I think that Ale's uh, uh, comment there is actually quite natural. Um, the question of how you impose it upon outsiders is awkward. And I think it's a sign. The Gondolin idea is not a perfect idea. And we will see by the end of the Gondolin experiment that 
it's I think it's ultimately a bad thing, actually. Right. Like when Turgon shuts his gates. Right. And won't let anybody in, even if they are fleeing from Morgoth, hate pursued. Right. That's bad. That's like and 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 the fact that Turgon and the whole Gondolin experiment is going wrong is plainly shown when he refuses uh, Olmo's message in the end, right? But it's going that way, right? And there are, there, are, there are strains that we can see all along. And I think the imposition of law upon outsiders, you've entered into Gondolin, you didn't know what you were getting into, you have not agreed to abide by these... I mean, Aeol has a point! Aeol totally has a point! At least in that, okay, you know, again, the whole, like, I'm going to, like, kill my son uh, and throw around poison javelins. Like, that's not defensible, and I'm not trying to pretend that. Um, but um, <clears throat> but there, he totally has a point. Um, and I think it does show, it's a warning sign. It's a red flag about Gondolin. <clears throat> so I do think that the that should be awkward. When the gate guards uh, of Gondolin are imposing the law of Gondolin, you know, imposing the customs, the these things that the people of Gondolin have all agreed to do, right? Except again, Arathel, which is another issue, as we're going to be talking about. Um, uh, yeah, Zach says, by agreeing to move to Gondolin, you are accepting these terms and conditions. Except, right, Ale didn't even get a chance to click "I agree" without reading it, right? Um, yeah, anyway, I, I think it's a really interesting situation, but to me, it fits not in a way that suggests this is the way Elvish culture works, but rather, this is a deviation from Elvish culture. This is a warning sign. This is a red flag. All is not well in Gondolin, right? Gondolin itself is not perfect, um, and the Gondolin idea in its execution is problematic, and that that uh, you know those problems are going to be getting bigger and more and more visible over time until in the end it all kind of uh, uh, kind of falls. Now, Nick, I agree. <laughs> Nick is serving as prosecution attorney in the trial of Ale here. It is true that Ale was pa- was trespassing and kind of knew that. Yes, absolutely, um, and probably actually knew the law. Of- it's not like he didn't know the custom of Gondolin before he went in, right? Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, no, no, it's, we we can we can argue. We will get a chance to argue Ale's case in detail when we get there. Um, but um, but it's definitely. I think it's definitely. Uh, uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely an issue. Um, uh, let's see, Ellen. No, I wouldn't argue that the more rigid use of laws in human culture is wrong. Exactly. Um, I think it's a different cultural context, but, you know, I think, you know, Ellen, even among human societies, I think we can, in, in Tolkien's world, I think that we can see a, uh, 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 variety here. Right. Um, and you know, one of the best human societies that we see, and I, I'm using human very, really mortal, I guess, is what I is what I mean. Um, one of the best mortal societies that we see is, of course, the Shire, which is notably anarchical, right? Uh, and there are laws in the Shire, but um, there are not that many laws, and there is no king, uh, not in the, again, not in the sense that there is a king in Rohan or Gondor, and... Um, uh, and you know nobody commits murder anyway, right? Uh, nobody, nobody appear, appears to. F- okay, there are some people who apparently feel inclined, um, but um, uh, anyway, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, exactly. Alan says hobbits get away with it because no hobbits are inclined to murder. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I think there might be some inclination, right? But, uh, uh, but, uh, but they don't actually do it, <laughs> right? Um, uh, anyway, um, you know, when Lobelia is, you know, up and goes for people with her umbrella, right? Come on now. <laughs> no, but I, anyway, I'm joking. But the point is, again, we, we see a variety. Um, and it's, it's different. One of the differences, again, it's not necessarily about elves being morally superior to humans. Like that elves are just intrinsically more virtuous than humans are. Humans are more corrupt. I don't think you necessarily have to go there. But I bet elves also are tempted to do a lot of stupid stuff when they're young. You know, like under a hundred which is all humans get, right? So that the oldest, wisest, most experienced of humans who has come to see, you know, like what is good and what is prudent and, and uh, uh, you know, to reflect on all of this is younger than like young hothead elves, elves, right? So when an elf lives for thousands of years, they have a different perspective on, and, you know, not to mention the fact that like, you know, <laughs> they have to live with their choices differently too, right? So... Exactly, Tony. It's about the longer and wider view of the elves um, than humans have, right? And uh, and Ellen, exactly as you were th- you mentioned, uh, Ellen dumping toxic waste in rivers, right? Also, the kind of thing that elves are much less likely to do because they're going to be the ones, who, you know, a lot of things that humans, a lot of the bad stuff that humans do is selfish in a way in which elves are not going to be, uh, in which. Elves are not going to act like I'm going to do something, even though it's totally detrimental to the society around me. Right. And to the generations who come after me, humans can do that. They can work themselves into a place where that seems like not a big deal at all. Right. Um, Because they personally are not going to feel the consequences of it. They know that either consciously or subconsciously. And so they don't care. Right. Even to say that elves aren't going to act that way is not to say that they are less selfish than humans. It's just that their selfishness in as much as their self is going to manifest itself differently because they would have to be for an elf to act in a way that is like destructive to their immediate environment and society is not just immoral. It's stupid, right? I mean, it's just dumb. It's foolish. Like you would have to be pretty thick in the head to pollute your own environment that you're going to have to live in for thousands of years to come, right? Um, So the more selfish and, and uh, uh, self-motivated and uh, you are, the less you're likely to act the way that a selfish, self-motivated human would act. That's what I mean when I say that. Um, uh, when I say that, it's it's just going to be different based on the nature of who they are. Um, and Ellen, I do think you can make an argument. I mean, if if people want to make an argument that you know humans are sort of more intrinsically corrupt than elves, I think that that's an argument that can be made. But I'm not super interested in that argument, mostly because one of the things that we certainly see in the Silmarillion is elves doing plenty of fallen stuff, right? You know, they like if you want to argue that elves are not fallen and humans are fallen, you can do that argument in theory. But when it comes to practice, it's kind of hard to tell the difference between the elves and the humans in the Silmarillion as far as their own inclination towards doing bad stuff. Um, 
so I I prefer not to think about it in those terms. Like elves are intrinsically more virtuous, but again, just but it is important to think through what would it be like actually to be an immortal person. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. And Marie, you're absolutely right. You know, Marie says not all humans behave more maturely than high schoolers just because they're older than high schoolers. And she suspects that there's some immature elves who are not young. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I agree. You know, there's got to be some people. Well, because some people are dumb. Right. I mean, that happens. Uh, I mean, I said you, you wouldn't have to just be selfish. You'd have to be stupid and foolish. I'm sure there are stupid and foolish elves like that's that's a thing right it's got to be so so yeah i mean uh, it's not again it's, so it's not to say that they will never act that way it's just there would not be the same broad tendency for them to act uh uh in that way um yeah um yeah anyway anyway yeah so um uh yeah good okay um Yeah. All right. So, so where are we? We've gone totally off the rails. <laughs> we, we have. No, this is good though. I, I, I always like these are such big and important issues, right? Because it's such a big framework, uh, and I feel that we have to regularly kind. Of, it's so easy to get sucked into thinking in human terms, right? I mean, just even when you're not realizing that you are, it's really important to sort of think through. Um, so yes Marie thank you for reminding me of where I wanted to go next Thingol is king what's Thingol's relationship with the Sindar as a whole because the difference the primary difference between the Sindar and the Noldar Nold, Noldor I, I often mix those up when I say them aloud too often um, the difference between the Sindar and the Noldor in as far as the political state in Beleriand is concerned is that the Sindar are much more unified. There's there's Cirdan, yes, and there are his people who live in the Havens, but um, I, it is clear that Thingol's authority is recognized by all of the Sindar, whereas, yes, like everyone is kind of affiliated with the High King, but it's the, the Noldor are much more divided. Um, the fact that they even need a High King, you know, to arbitrate among them, um, is, uh, um, yeah. Ellen, that's a really great point. Um, Ellen points out that the, 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 like the first and fundamental reality of the Sindar world is love, their love for Elway. They stayed. And this, you know, comes back to our discussions in season two. Right. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the emphasis that we built there in season two about, the the Teleri who do not go to Valon, or all the Teleri, right? All the Teleri end up where they go, not because they're easily distracted, right? But all of this, all of the Teleri end up where they end up because they choose this, right? Because of what they feel their own callings and purpose are. Um, and so, as Ellen reminds us, um, the calling and purpose of the Sindar was <clears throat> to Elway himself, Right, Elway was lost. They're going to stay and look for him. Um, that was what they, that was what they did, right? And so when they found him, he is the center of their culture in a way which is, I think, is it fair to say, 
that that would be unique in Elvish culture? I think it might be. And so, therefore, we could show for that reason because... So the Sindar... Sindarin culture is more... Okay, this is going to be a controversial statement, but bear I don't I don't mean this in a strong and negative way, but it's more like a cult of personality than any of the Noldor kingdoms, exactly, right? Um, yeah, Nick, that's exactly... Nick uh, uh, guessed exactly where I was going with that. Yeah, like that. Like, again, I, I don't mean that in a... I know there are lots of negative associations with that concept, um, but... Uh, but in that he, as a person, is really more at the center of their culture than is true of any of the, really any of the Noldor individual realms, even, I would say. Um, and yeah, Hakon points out, it's a great point, Hakon, when Elway not comes back with Melian, you know, he's almost like a demigod or like a demi-Maya. Yes, there's this sense of um, apotheosis almost. Right, it's not just that they found him again, right? Uh, the rejoicing of the Sindar when they find Elway again is not just like the father of the prodigal son, right? Oh, like our leader who was lost is now found again! Hooray! You know, yes, there is that element, of course. But yeah, Hakan, he when he comes back, he's not only just gotten married, right? He emerges from this you know, divine stasis with his divine wife and, and he's, he's different. He's changed, right? Um, he has been elevated. Yes, holiness is a good way to think about it, Ellen. There's a kind of holiness about him. They would... Yeah. Mm, that's a really interesting word, Ellen, because uh, I... Um, I think um, that would be a really neat way to spin the the Sindar culture and what makes it different, there would be a reverence for Thingol that none of the Noldor would have for their kings, right? The Noldor kingships and kingdoms would be much more of a sort of first among equals thing. Right, like we're all here and we all agree, but you know we 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 ignore, we follow these leaders, right? Because we respect them and we and we uh, uh, and we are you know we're 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 we'll, we'll stick with them. Um, but there isn't that sense of reverence. Yeah, and I, I agree, Ellen. It's not that he's infallible, but um, but yeah, yeah, I I I, uh, I like that. We wouldn't want to have an actual... We'd want to be careful with the reverence. Like, we can't have an actual, I think, religious... Like, openly religious feel to it. Like, there shouldn't be actual reverence. Like, shrines or something like that, right? Um... There can't. I don't think there should be a religious practice because there's not even that with the Valar themselves, right? Um, uh, yeah, exactly. So not not worship, just reverence. Though, of course, Marie, when you say that, it makes me think that uh, there should be somebody who crosses the line, right, in order to show that. 
someone in Doriath who's a little too over the top. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, actually, it is interesting. So Nick was he said initially when uh, Elway returns with uh, uh, with uh, with Melian, it's like Moses descending from the mountain to the Israelites, right? And I, I do think it's an interesting parallel. But Nick is sort of following that up and saying, actually, come to think of it, the Sindar would regard Elway as a kind of Moses figure. Yes, I think that's actually not a bad... Um, not a bad place to be uh, uh, sort of metaphor, right? I mean, or parallel. Parallel, that's the word I want. Um, the reverence, uh, the kind of authority that Moses had, right? Um, the way in which he, he, he wields authority as their, you know, as prophetic authority, right? Speaking for God. Um, they don't worship Moses, uh, but there's that reverence. So that is actually an interesting parallel. Um, yeah, both Zach and Ellen are thinking of Cyrus as a possible uh, uh, one who goes a little too far. He's obviously a great option for uh, a super questionable, um, super questionable uh, moral character uh, in 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 Doriath, definitely. Problem is, it's hard. Given what we know of his character, it's hard for me to see him being a worshiper. Like he's too. I mean, he's a fop, right? He's he's like vain. Um, anyone who is, if anyone for whom vanity is a failing, is like got to be focused on themselves. And anyone who focuses so much on themselves, it's hard to see. It's hard for me to see them going that far in the other direction. Yeah. Okay. We don't have to have a we don't have to have a Doriath elf who crosses the line. I just it was just thinking about that. But okay. So, um. Yeah. Yeah. No, Ellen. That's a good way to think of Cyrus. More of a hanger on who associates with celebrity for his own glory. Sure. Yeah. That I can see in Cyrus definitely. Um. Hakan wants to see the Philothrim not treating Thingol with the same reverence. Um. I agree. Kierden sees him as an old friend. Definitely. Um. Uh. Kyrdan, Olway, and Elway were colleagues, right? And so El- Kyrdan would definitely still see Elway as a colleague, but I think even even Kyrdan perceives the difference, right? Um, Kyrdan... I still think there should be a perceptible difference between Kyrdan's submission to Thingol and, say, Finrod's submission to Fingolfin, right? Those two should not look the same. There should be more of an uh, an atmosphere of I agree to comply with Fingolfin because I think that is the right thing. And so I, this is how we're going to do it. Right. Whereas with Kierden, it should be more of a, he deserves my obedience. Um, uh, he, there should be an, an element of that reverence of that, uh, sort of sainthood there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ooh, Tony is thinking of uh, maybe Dairon as one who is at least, if not a, over the line, on the far end of the reverence of Thingol, uh, and that it would extend to Luthien in his mind. Yeah, that Luthien herself would then be this almost like quasi-goddess figure to him. Yeah, I kind of like that. And you're right. Yeah, you're right, Ellen. Luthien would shut him down if he started worshipping her dad openly, sure. But... Um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, yes. Aw, oh, Marie, that's a really great word to describe it. Dairon should be the most openly in awe. And it's nice because, you know, we talked about him as being young. He's like a, you know, sort of the younger generation. He's not exactly a peer of, you know, Beleg and, and, and Mablong, right? So, and, uh, and Celeborn as, as we've constructed it or Kierden, certainly. Um, so him having this sort of being much more, much more in awe, much more sycophantic for that reason, uh, to, uh, to Thingol. And of course, coming closer, I suspect, maybe to worshipping Luthien, which is why that would set him up really well for an appropriately horrified reaction to the whole Baron situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, yeah, I can see you guys are all thinking exactly the same direction as I am with that. Yeah, that would, that would, that, that would work. Um, Tony, I think that Kyrdan and the Philothrim are basically counted among the Sindar. Again, I don't think that they are as separate from the Sindar as, say, you know, again, the people of uh, of Finrod are from, you know, the Feanorians. I mean, there's not nearly as much gap there. They are distinct. I mean, they, 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 the, the Philothrim follow Círdan first and Thingol second. But there's also... That's easy to do because there's no conflict between Círdan and Thingol and... and uh, uh, Kirtan's re- uh, <clears throat> respect and, and even reverence for Thingol is such that there's, there's gonna be, right? But they definitely um, they definitely see themselves as a people, but they're not a people apart from the Sindar. They would see themselves as a as a as a <clears throat> as a subset. But still definitely a Sindar, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, having established some really broad <laughs> generalizations here, this was good. This, I wasn't even planning to go to go like this basic, but I think this is important. With this understanding, let's go to let's let's go to Vinyamar. Let's go to Nevrast. What happens in Nevrast? Why does Nevrast become the melting pot? How does Nevrast become the melting pot? Why Turgon? Why does Turgon do it? Why do the Sindar do it? Why do the Noldor accept them? Yeah. <laughs> Maria, I was hoping to get to Kelport and Galadriel today too, but I don't think it's happening. <clears throat> um, that's okay. That's okay. Let's keep doing what we got. Remember this open-ended, open-ended discussions of our plot threads. It's all good. Um, Tony says because Turgon would prefer the Sindar to the Feanorians. Yes. Yes. But but see, I don't see Turgon as accepting, like looking for allies. I don't see him as sort of scheming strategically. Hmm. Hmm. 
Um, and again, the reason I say that, the reason I say that I, I can't see that as his primary, th- is that Gondolin is not strategic in that sense. It is strategic in the sense of finding a way to protect and preserve the elves from a foreboded dark future. But the Gondolin move is the move of somebody who ultimately believes that the war with Morgoth is not going to pan out, right? If you, if you were confident that they were going to be able to hold Morgoth in leaguer or, or defeat him, you don't form Gondolin, right? Um, so... There's a way in which I see Turgon kind of distancing himself, like, as all of, as as many of the other Noldor are like, you know, especially Mithros, right? It's like, okay, we need to think about how we work together and how we hold Morgoth in, and and how we can coordinate our armies when the time comes. I see Turgon as distancing himself, at first metaphorically from those discussions, in the end physically from those discussions, right, and not playing a part in that at all. <clears throat> uh, so. It can't be for those kinds of strategic reasons, even for uh, even for intra-Noldor politics reasons. I can't. That's why I can't see that um, with Turgon. Um, Marie suggests maybe uh, you know Nevrast is a place for trade. Vinyamar being on the coast, um, it is a natural landing spot. So maybe. We sh- we can show Turgon and Kirden working together more, um, and they're becoming a natural. I mean, yet, Marie, this seems like a really kind of simple way to talk about it, right? But Vinyamar's on the coast, <laughs> so therefore they're going to have more contact with the Falathrim than, say, Carinthir is, right? <clears throat> Those who live in deeply landlocked areas are going to have less contact uh, with the Falathrim. So even just by geographic position, uh, Turgon and Vinyamar is going to, uh, you know, in, in, in Nevrest and Vinyamar are going to have more contact with. And also it's it's on the sort of I was going to say like buffer zone, but it's it's on the you know as the Sindar kind of gathered principally in the middle of the map, right? Uh, Nevrast is is not right on the edge; it's like on, it's not right next to Doriath. But you know, if the Sindar are kind of moving out and exploring and interacting with folks, Nevrast is going to be one of the places that they go. So, given that Nevrast is getting elves, you know, Sindar from both directions in a sense, they would certainly have more contact with them. Um, <clears throat> yes. And Bri, of course, you're right. We do need to recall that Turgon will have selected his city by the sea because he's the one who's spending most time looking back towards Valinor, right? Um, r- remember Mr. Gold and Silver Trees in Gondolin, right? <clears throat> he's one of the most westward facing of all of the Noldor, right? Um, and ironically, that ends up connecting him with uh, um, uh, that ends up connecting him more with the Sindar. 
So, okay, so we can explain how the Sindar got there. Why would he... Why would he welcome them? He would welcome them because he would already feel the kind of calling that Turgon feels in establishing Gondolin is to be a refuge, to preserve. And to preserve not just Noldor culture, but all of Elvendom, right? Um, it would be... Um, it would be kind of cool. To, and remember, you know, back at the beginning when we were talking about themes, and we were talking about forgiveness and reconciliation... <clears throat> one of the things that I was talking about was how the founding of Gondolin can be used as a as a way to sort of show this. Um, and I do think that should be... We should show Turgon beginning in this spirit, right? The spirit in which he begins his career of leader of the refuge for elves should be... Um, his reach, his the Sindar come to him can we have him rescue somebody? Like physically rescue somebody? Should there be some I don't know what, we could have some surely we can have some roaming werewolves or somebody even though there aren't orc armies roaming around the country at this point, there can still be some threats, right? Sauron is still at large and he's still doing things, right? So maybe you know, Sauron is sending out some exploratory, you know, werewolf squads or something like that. Um, and uh, he... So, so... They're in danger. Like, there are some Sindar who are living, you know, near their outside of Doriath, um, and therefore beyond the protection of the Girdle. Um, and they need... They, you know, they need... And, and he takes them in, right? And that can be the beginning... Uh, of his uh, sort of career, right? Um, exactly, Ellen. The Sindar would want protection. He would be giving them protection. We would see this at the beginning. Because, see, again, I- I'm thinking of the overall trajectory, right? I'm thinking of the the history of Gondolin and the the the, the fall of Turgon, right? Turgon does fall, um, <clears throat> as is you know ultimately symbolized in the in the in the falling over of, of the tower, right? With him in it. Um, he begins the whole Gondolin story begins with Turgon's calling, his desire to protect and preserve as much as he can, um, both of elves and of like elvendom itself. Um, he is open to all, he is wanting to protect all, so he would be of the non Finarfin Noldor, he would be the most proactively embracing of the Sindar. I guess, with the possible exception of Galadriel as far as embracing is concerned. But um, he would be one of the most proactively embracing of the uh, of the Sindar because he, again, he's thinking bigger picture. He, uh, he's thinking preserva- <clears throat> preservation of all elvendom. Um, but uh, he goes from there. <clears throat> In the end, he goes from, you know, uh, you know, give me your tired, you're sick, you're hungry, to you know, Gond- Gondolin being um, 
to Gondolin being like a roach motel that you can't escape from, even if you want to, to finally closing the doors. That's why closing the doors is such a big deal. Like, that is him turning away from his original um, mission, right? His whole his whole purpose um and we where we can see him really betraying um betraying his betraying his purpose um yeah yeah um ooh that's really neat marie i really like that a lot um the impetus for protection uh would be the most positive way of showing grief for the loss of his wife yeah yeah i like that that it would be connected to his grieving in a in like a constructive way, right? Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we know, and of course, as Ellen is reminding us, we uh, there are. Um, we, of course, we know that there are Sindar in Mithrim and in uh, Nargothrond as well. Now, we, we made the choice, or I was sort of, in, just for the sake of simplifying things, I was wanting to remove the Sindar from Mithrim originally, right? Um, but we do want to get them up there eventually. Um, do we need a story for this? I don't know that we need a story for this. I think that we can show that happening just as a consequence of the peace, right? Um, yeah, so they can be there, but I don't think we need to make a big deal about getting them there. Again, we need to explain Turgon, because Turgon's story is a big story. Um, so we need to explain how Gondolin ends up becoming Gondolin. That's why it's important for Nevrost. <clears throat> in a sense, the presence of Sindar in Nargothrond is easier, because... Finrod's related to him, right? So, I mean, some of his cousins move in. Sure, right? Why not, right? Uh, so... Um, so yeah, yeah, um, that's, that's fine. So yeah, exactly. So we'll get elves in Mithrim, but we don't need to bother with them too much now. Um, they're going to be important, but not for a while. Um, they're going to be, uh, Sindar in Nargothrond, but as I say, that's not as big a deal, culturally speaking, because again, it just, it's a natural extension. We do want to show Finrod as being more, um, generally pro-Sindar, right? Uh, naturally, because he's he's their kin, he's related to them. Um, uh, so he would welcome both. So the fact that there are Sindar and Noldar in Nargothrond, both, suggests, I mean, is, is again sort of a natural extension of <clears throat> his own nature, his own kind of dual loyalty, f- family ties. F- Finrod is pro everyone, Marie, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that's why I wanted to focus on Nevrast, because that's where it seems to me it's the, it's the most important issue. And remember, <clears throat> Nevrast is going to be... Turgon is going to host the Marath Adarthad. That's... I, I, and, and this is why I think that makes a whole lot of sense, right? The, uh, this, all of this that we've been saying about Nevrast <clears throat> in the present and Gondolin to come makes a lot of sense as um, the... Um, I, that he would that he would be hosting that. Um, okay. So you know what we haven't talked about the kinslaying. 
<laughs> We've totally gotten away from even the submarine. Not only have we not gotten to Gladio and Kelborn, we haven't even gotten to how the Sindar learned of the Kinslaying. I think this has been a productive session. <laughs> it's possible that our new, uh, or not uh, possible that our new approach is really just enabling even more wandering. Right. But it's also possible that I'm totally unapologetic about that. Yeah. No, that's not possible. It's guaranteed. Yeah, you're right. That is pretty much guaranteed. Um, okay. We can, having set this up, we can talk a little bit, <clears throat> at least, about the, um, the Sendar learning of the Kinslang. Let's go ahead and do this. Okay. Having laid this groundwork, nobody, none of the Noldor, want to talk about it. It's, many of them are guilty, <clears throat> to everyone else, it's at least awkward. Um, at the very least, the children, the people of Finarfin are saddened by it um, and don't want to talk about it. And none of them want to make trouble. Um, uh, yeah. Um, One interesting point, and Marie, you bring this up on one of the slides that we're not getting to, <clears throat> but um, even Sauron doesn't know about the kinslaying. Nobody knows about the kinslaying. One of the plots... Sauron doesn't know? How would, how would he know? Who told him? Does Morgoth know? Does Morgoth know? I don't know. That's I mean, either. How would he find out? I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess like he wasn't there. He wasn't but it there. It seems like the sort of thing that he would eventually like. You know, he seems like the kind of guy that finds things out, right? Right. But that would—that's exactly the point. One of the plots, one of the subplots of the season, right, has to be them. So, <clears throat> yes, we have the Sindar figuring it out, right? But. Sauron's got to figure it out. Sauron's in charge because Morgoth is away, right? He's doing whatever he does with the humans off somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. He's still in the greater Hildorian region, right? Uh, orchestrating the fall of mankind. Um, Sauron's in charge in the meantime. Sauron and Thorin Gwethel need to find out what happened. Um, they're going to get wind that something was up, right? They're going to they're going to they're going to sniff this out and they're going to find this out and presumably they are going to find it out sooner than the Sindar are going to find it out because unlike the I can't see the Sindar as doing a lot of active snooping right because why would they snoop like would they, even if they might feel that the Noldor are being strangely unforthcoming they might find it weird at first and suspicious in the in the end that the Noldor don't talk about like <clears throat> why they always awkwardly change the subject when you know they when the Sindar ask about their friends and family out and out in Alqualande, right? Um, so there's going to be some confusion at first, suspicion later, 
but none of them, none of the Sindar are going to be initially uh, uh, inclined, I think, to be all like, let's get to the bottom of this, right? That's not going to be their first impulse. It will be Sauron's first impulse, right, to get to the bottom of this. So he's going to be actively ferreting it out sooner, I think. Um, yeah. Um, Thuringuethel would be the primary like watching at keyholes and listening at windows spy right who could overhear yeah, some councils you know some discussions among the Noldor Sauron himself um is a shape changer Tony yes and so could um um could go among them at various points. I definitely, I like, I forget whose suggestion it was. Somebody suggested that Sauron should go among them uh, at the Merith Adarthad. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony, to, Tony wants Tavildo to be involved. Mm, maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, Tavildo as a cat, you know, it's not like he's not capable of stealth, but I don't think this is his game. Um, he's sneaky, but in a stealth attack ninja attack assault kind of way, not in a, uh, I'm a spy. Yeah, exactly. Not subtle. Subtle is, is not what he is. He's, uh, uh, he's a hunter, and he's could be an assassin, but he's not. Uh, um, he's not uh, a spy in the same way. I mean, a giant cat can move quietly, but it's not super inconspicuous <laughs> necessarily. Um, yeah, <clears throat> that's not his role. Okay, all right. Yeah, Drugluin is his thug. Tavildo is his hunter assassin, and Thuringuetho is his spymaster. Thinking of Sauron's posse here, right? Okay. Um, what? Going back to the initial premise, the Sindar conclude. They cannot fail to conclude that the arrival of the Noldor was eucatastrophic. <clears throat> it is, as Nick called it earlier, a pseudo eucatastrophe, right? To, to, to string, to recklessly string uh, uh, Greek prefixes together. It's a pseudo eucatastrophe. Um, but um, there's no way Fingolfin is going to actively play along with the idea. He's not going to lie about that. <clears throat> if somebody asks Fingolfin straight up, did the Noldor, you know, did the Valar send you? He's not going to say yes. Right? There's no way he's going to do that. No, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. Who would? Kurafin would. Kurafin for sure. Right. Um, 
Would any of the non-Fanorian Noldor do that? Now, Maria, I know Kurifin hates the Valar, but he would claim that they send them. I'm just saying, I'm not saying necessarily that that would be his policy or, or his choice of strategy. I'm just asking, who would do it? Like, who would tell a lie of that kind? And how do we orchestrate things such that nobody... Because it's hard for me to see any of them doing that. Being like, oh yeah, uh, totally, uh-huh. We were sent by the Valar. That's it. That's just what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, here, because the Valar sent us. And if nobody is willing to say that, I, I, it's easy to see how the misunderstanding, you know, how that assumption would be made and how it could be perpetuated among the Sindar who don't encounter the Noldor. But when they do meet and when we do show them interacting, the Sindar have to bring that up, right? I mean, somebody's going to just ask the awkward question or the question that is awkward to the Noldor. So the Valar sent you, right? Did the Valar send you? They did, didn't they? Right? What's going to happen? Um, do they claim not to be sent? Do they just equivocate? Ellen is suggesting a possibly an equivocation. Yeah. Again, we can say they avoid the subject, but see, again, that's not... This is another one of those wonderful examples of how doing an adaptation of this kind presses us to think through things in a different way. It's easy when you're writing the pro-Silmarillion, right, to say something like, the Sindar assumed this and the Noldor didn't, you know neither confirmed nor denied, right? You can say that that's kind of the state of things. But notice Tolkien never just depicts, like, gives us dialogue between one of the Sindar and one of the Noldor talking about this at that time, right? I mean, we, we, we get some encounters, like with Thingol, later on. But we don't... Uh, if When we actually have to imagine a flesh and blood Noldo and Sinda talking together, right? Um, how does that... Uh, how does that work? How does that go? Um, it's really hard to imagine how they could keep this a secret for very long. Yeah. I mean... Without some form of... Um, uh, without some form of enforcement mechanism. Or active deception, right? Yeah. I mean, if we don't want the Noldor to be actively deceptive, either to tell lies or to deliberately equivocate with the intention to deceive, right? I, I, I'm starting to, I'm kind of inclined to think that I think we're going to have to have some form of, <clears throat> um, like, mandated silence. Like, I think to the extent that we want to demonstrate um, uh, diversity of opinion, I think that would be done in a scene 
in which there's a debate over what to say and to whom. Right. And then, um, and then, and then, and then that concludes with Finn Golfin very reluctantly saying, you know, we're all, you're banned. You know, like I prohibit any of you from talking about this with anyone who's not an older. It's, because that, that's the only way to get, uh, that's the only way to make it not feel like, you know, like, like, if if there's people who want to talk about it but are just but feel like they're bound and cannot talk about it then then at least they're not all um colluding in deception then they're you know then they're um uh kind of reluctantly following their king or whatever right um otherwise i think then otherwise we have this problem that we'll have a lot of individual characters some of whom are quite you know are supposed to be quite heroic and virtuous um sort of very inexplicably participating in deception. Right. Right. And we have Galadriel being put in like the worst possible position, which is having, having to decide between respecting, you know, this, this, um, uh, this rule or law or whatever we want to call it and lying to Melian and concluding that it's basically impossible to lie to Melian. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's kind of, that's my, my thinking is at least if we have some kind of, you know, societal ban on talking about it um then at least there's a lot of people who can be kind of like innocent of active deception because they're just doing what they're told i don't know right yeah okay so forget the kings and people right now let's imagine a conversation between a random Cinda and a random Noldo, right? So you're in the marketplace in Nevrast, right? And you've got two people hanging out at the pub. How does the conversation go? You know, the Cinda says, oh man, like, you've been to Valinor, how is that? And they're like, oh yeah, Valinor is cool, right? And then like, so, you know, they're going to ask about how they, like, how and why they came over. So what's the Noldo going to say? Like, so, oh, man, we're so lucky that you guys came over. Like, you guys really rescued us. Is that It was so great of the Valar to send you. What does the Noldo do? Just like, you're like, uh, mm, right? I can neither confirm nor... So, like, what do they actually say? See, we can say that they don't want to talk about what happened in Valinor, but again, so, so what do they say? No, they don't want to talk about it, but what do they say? They're going to be asked. Somebody's asking you straight up. Why did you come over? What do you say? You have to say something. You might not want to talk about it, but you have to verbally not talk about it. What do you say? You have to say something. I mean, so what, you just say nothing? You're just like... Yep. In which case, then what? What does this end to think of you? Right? How does that go? How does the whole culture proceed on this basis where we've got people living together? Right? Send out like neighbors. Right? Um, okay, good. We have to, we do have to imagine, and here again, I think we get back to a, um, an elvish culture issue, right? Elves would be much more patient. So, thinking for a moment about Galadriel. For Galadriel, I think this is almost easier. Um, 
she could say, if people asked her about Aqualande, if people asked her about Valinor, she could say, she would not need to conceal the fact that she's upset, that she's grieving, even, right? But I, I would think <clears throat> that she could say something like, uh, there is grief you know this this like th- there is grief behind me and i do not wish to speak of it yet and people like melian would be like okay we can be paid, we can give you a few decades you know before we'll ask again right um again they can be patient they, they wouldn't be prying on a daily basis right to see if she would talk about this um uh Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I mean, I I know that's what she says in the Silmarillion. My point is not about what she would say. My point is that she would like that they would respect that, and we and and that would be okay, more okay than it would be. I mean, it would be weird for that to stretch out for. I mean, for me, the grief is still too near. Would not work for a human fifty years later. I mean, you could still say that. But there comes a time when the people around you are going to say, honey, it's time to move on. Let's talk about it. We, we kind of need to know what was going on. You can't say, you can't keep saying the grief is still for me too, too near 50 years later, right? But for an elf, sure, yeah, still pretty near, right? Absolutely. It's only been 300 years, so it's still, the wound is fresh. I can't talk about it. Um, yeah, exactly. It, it, so... <clears throat> that helps a little. But if the Noldor policy is just to stonewall all of the Sindar, all of Sindar, right, just stonewall them. Don't say anything. Don't tell them anything. Just say you don't want to talk about it. What do the Sindar think? What do they think? How do they read that? Of course I agree, Ellen, that the Cinder are going to become suspicious. What I am not okay with is suspicion being instantaneous. That's A, boring. I want to show a better, a more interesting progression than that. And B, it's, it's too, it's, the kinslaying is unthinkable, unthinkable. Nobody suspects the kinslaying. Nobody suspects the kinslaying. If you are in a situation where the idea of the kinslaying happening is inconceivable, literally, like they do know what that word means. It is inconceivable to them that the kinslaying is the reality of what lies behind this situation. Given that, given the inconceivability of the truth, what would they think? And I don't think their first response is going to be suspicion. Like, oh, like, we can't trust these people. If you did not have the impulse to distrust, then how would you respond? Pity? 
And Marie is right <clears throat> to point out that in day-to-day -day personal interactions, it can be avoided <clears throat> if like grief is involved, right? You can, you can, for me, the grief is still too near. You can say when you're Goadro having a, perf a personal conversation. Um, but as Marie says, <clears throat> and I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice because I'm getting my kids cold. Um, as Marie says, if you're the ambassador to Thingle, you can't go there. Like, you can't take refuge in that. You've got to say something. Um, but again, I don't think suspicion can't be more than a second or third step. What I'm trying to tease out, what are the steps that come first? What's the progression? I think step one has to be pity. Right? Pity. As Zach says, something terrible happened because of Morgoth. Right? Yeah. Um, Morgoth, who has done... I mean, they've experienced the invasion, right? The, uh, the, the siege of Doriath. They've seen the kinds of things that Morgoth's creatures do. That's, that's got to be what they're imagining when they know that there's a grief that lies, uh, you know, something is weighing heavy on the hearts of them, then they don't want to talk about it, that sadness lies behind them. Um, so they would be responding out of pity. And Ellen, yeah, that's a really good point. Admiration, too. That the Noldor have responded to whatever was the horrible tragedy they've experienced. They've responded very admirably, right? They're fighting back against Morgoth. Uh, despite whatever it was he did to them, you know, they are... Um, they, the Noldor, are, you know... They've moved ahead. They've moved forward. Um... Right, and Marie, you're right. They can reveal the death of Finway. Would that be enough? Wouldn't explain why they don't want to talk about Aqualande. There has to be a story. There has to be a story. Somebody has to tell something. Because at the very least, they'll guess that it has something to do with the Teleri because that's one of the things none of the Noldor want to talk about, right? What is Galadriel grieving about? Grandpa? That doesn't explain... Grieving for Grandpa doesn't explain why she doesn't want to talk about her mom, right? The fact that Teleri were killed, the, the fact that there was some disaster at Aqualande has to come out. It has to. At the very least, they have to suspect that. Right? Um, yeah, and as Zach says, the Noldor, of course, do feel wronged by Morgoth. And so they try to move the Sindar into thinking more in that direction, too. Sure. Sure, that they would kind of play on that. Or, like, not play on that, but, like, that's a safe place. Right? That's a safe thing they can talk about. Let's talk about how Morgoth did bad things to us, right? Um, I would think that the death of the trees would come out pretty early, right? Because that's the... 
if they want to the death of the trees and the darkening of Valinor would be reason like by even even apart from the death of Finway personally right um it would be uh, um it would be a good reason to say, like, you know, to be able to point to, like, look, tragedy, yes, tragedy lies behind us. It totally does. Let us tell you about the death of the trees, because that's totally tragic, right? And, like, disaster, so disaster has struck Valinor, would be the message that the, that the you know, not, like, necessarily permanent disaster, right, that Valinor are going to recover, but disaster has stricken Valinor would be one of the messages that they would receive. And that by itself might be enough. Maybe that's the first step. The first step is the Teleri understand that disaster struck Valinor. And at first they think the reason the Noldor don't want to talk about this is that they're still upset about the tragedy in Valinor. Okay. Then it becomes clearer and clearer that they really don't want to talk about Aqualande too. Which at first they thought maybe this is just part of the whole Valinor catastrophe thing. But it becomes clear, no, there's something about Aqualande too. Like, that there's... uh, Because, just because, like there was a catastrophe in Valinor doesn't mean that you don't want to answer questions about like when I ask you, you know, how my cousin Bert is doing, you're, you know, you're not going to tell me about my cousin Bert, right? Um, uh, like, cause now I know that my cousin Bert experienced tragedy over in Valinor. So I'm keenly interested to find out how cousin Bert, the Teleri is right. So, but you're not telling me about cousin Bert. You won't talk about cousin Bert. Why won't you talk about cousin Bert? Did something happen to cousin Bert? Right. You've got to go there. Right. I and mean, that's, it's gotta be that. So that would be the second stage then. Right. Okay. No, no, wait. It's not just about the darkening. Something happened at Aqualande and then older don't want to talk about it. But I still don't think suspicion is going to, because again, unthinkable, inconceivable, right? They're not going to be thinking, did the Noldor do something horrible at Aqualande? That's a later stage. Sauron is going to be the first one to suspect that, right? Mm hmm. Sauron will smell a rat. The Sindar will not. The, Sil- the Sindar will still be pity oriented, right? Um. Like, oh, something really terrible must have ha- happened at, at Alkalandi, but that was so bad that they don't even want to talk about that, right? Um, of course, the other thing that's going to be very apparent, those who crossed the Helkaraxe, like, who are, of course, the ones who are most closely related to the Sindar, <clears throat> they're not going to want to talk about that either, because the grief from that is even fresher, right? So it is clear that the Noldor themselves have suffered a lot especially those who cross the Helkaraxa. So the Sindar are going to again have motivations for pity. So the Sindar looking at them are going to be like, okay, you guys have suffered terribly. Many of you died. You had this horrible... We gather. There's this horrible experience with the Helkaraxa. So, so goodness. Like, there was the darkening of the trees. We know what happened at the beginning, darkening of the trees. We know what happened at the end, the crossing of the Helkaraxa. Something else happened in the middle, which was also apparently terrible, but they would naturally connect those three dots, right? The thing that all three of those events have in common is terrible stuff happening to the Noldor, right? Cause for pity. The fact that it also involves their own kin 
in Alqualande would be anxiety-provoking, but still they would be patient in acknowledging that the Noldor don't really want to go there and dwell on all that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I think that the Noldor would be willing to talk about the Helcaraxa, even again, if only to give a reason to talk about something, you know, um, I think the Noldor would be motivated to share traumatic experiences that aren't guilty experiences for them, right? I mean, why would you hold back a reason, like a good justification for like being upset about what happened in the past and not wanting to talk about it, right? You would, right? So, yeah, okay. So... First, they just think generic tragedy in Valinor. Then they think, okay, something had happened at, at Alqualande, but some other disaster. Morgoth must have done something there. The ships. Could this have something to do with the ships? Did the Teleri come over with them, but all get massacred, and the Noldor still don't want to talk about it? Because those, I mean, Círdan, of all people, clearly can ID even the burnt-out husks of the ships, right? He's got to know that those are Teleri boats. But there are no Teleri with them. Did they all die? And and as we talked about before, Morgoth clearly obviously did that, right? Who would burn the ships of the Teleri except for the creatures of Morgoth? So when Círdan first shows up at the smoking ruins of the ships, he thinks, oh my gosh, Olway came back and Morgoth slaughtered them, right? Destroyed their ships and slaughtered a lot of them. Um, yeah. So, how would that fit in with their speculations? Again, here, I'm just continuing, I'm just continuing to try to think through this from the Teleri perspective. How do they read the non-communicativeness of the Noldor? Even assuming all of the Noldor are still playing the the grief is for me too near card, right? And refusing to talk about it for that reason. Okay. So that's the other piece. So something happened in Alqualande and it was tragic. And Teleri clearly died because people like Galadriel are grieving and it's probably not just Grandpa, right? So there are dead Teleri involved, possibly disaster in Aqualande itself, and we have these burned-out ships on the coast. That can't be a coincidence. And of course it's not a coincidence, right? But their first thought would be that this must be the tragedy. Surely this is the tragedy they're thinking of? It's got to be, doesn't it? have to be the tragedy they're thinking of. So why were some of the Noldor coming very painfully on foot? <gasps> Maybe that's why. Oh, that would be super noble, wouldn't it? Okay, all right. So, again, I'm thinking like a Teleri here, or trying to think like a Teleri here. 
the Teleri and the Noldor must have been working together because the ships are evidence of that, right? So the Teleri and the Noldor must have been working together. So the Teleri were going to bring the Noldor over. Remember, Círdan and Olwen, remember that conversation we had them have back in season two, right? I'll be the one on this side of the sea and you be the one on that side of the sea. So so Círdan would assume that ferrying the armies of the Noldor back for their assault on Morgoth would be part of Olwen's gig, right? Like, he would obviously he would do that. So... Olway brings... The, so he, he's going to ferry them over, but they don't have enough ships for all of them, right? So they're bringing... He brings over the Feanorians first, and then disaster strikes. And the Teleri are slaughtered, and their ships are destroyed, and they're probably all dead. At least all those, you know, that were involved. Not like 100% of them. All of them are involved. But the rest of the Noldor that were stranded over on the other side because the ships got burned... What did they do? Did they go home? No, they didn't go home. Did they give up? They did not give up. Did they abandon their kin? They did not. They came over across the Helcaraxa because, doggone it, that's how devoted and self-sacrificing they are, right? So this was not only a eucatastrophe. This was a eucatastrophe self-consciously undertaken in a self-sacrificing mode, right? I mean, what they gave up to come back and deliver us from Morgoth. That's got to be what the Tuareg would think first, right? That's how they'd read the Helcaraxa crossing? Definitely. Totally. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So our opinion of the Noldor is only rising as a consequence of these things that we're learning, right? I, lo- I like this. I like the idea that, uh, that, that, that in reflecting on it, they'll draw the wrong conclusion and esteem the, uh, the Noldor even more. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we get the crash, right? So this... One of the nice things about this trajectory is that it makes the shock of the truth about the kinslaying even more shocking than it was before, right? Yep. Okay, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying it's necessary to discuss the Helcaraxa, but I am saying that it is logical for them to cross to discuss the Helcaraxa. And I see no good reason for them not to discuss the Helcaraxa. I can't think of one good reason. I can think of no good reasons for them not to discuss the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Um, especially, I mean, yes, are they grieving? Yes. Was the grief too recent? Yeah, but I don't think it's a, it's a rule that, I don't think that 0% of elves are willing to talk about sad things that recently happened. Like, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's a natural law, right? Yes, I don't think that they'd be like super cheerful about it, but I don't think they'd hide it. And I, I can think of lots of reasons why they would choose not to hide it. Um, because it's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, yeah, yeah. So, under these circumstances, I think they are positively motivated to talk about the Helcaraxa, which would help them to overcome their reticence to revisit the tragedy. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not saying I think it's necessary. I'm saying I think it's good, and I think the re- the result is a cool story. So that's why I am, I am very strongly advocating it. Um, okay, so... The third step would be suspicion. The Sindar here, the, here figure you know stuff out about the tragedy in Alqualande, and they draw conclusions that tend to make the Noldor sound like heroes. Sauron would hear it and smell a rat, and begin to suspect the truth, and then he would send. Um, and then he would send 
spies. He would send Thorin Grethel to try to get to the bottom of it. And she could then overhear, like, Feanorians talking about it amongst themselves and figure it out. So then step three, suspicion. The Sindar becoming actively suspicious of the Noldor would then be a recapitulation of the unrest of the Noldor in Valinor. Just as Morgoth circulates among the Noldor, sowing unrest and prompting unhappy thoughts, right, towards the Valar, um, and, you know, stoking the right fires and banking down the wrong ones, right, to try to manipulate the Noldor into going the way he wants them to go. That's the game that Sauron would begin playing with the Sindar. Yes, Marie, Sauron knows that Morgoth didn't burn those ships. Sauron doesn't know what happened in Alquilande, but he knows that that part of the story is not true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he would be able to conclude just logically, Feanor must have done it. Yeah. Um, so yes, yes, he would, and that's why he then sends Thurin Gwethil. He learns the truth about the kinslaying, and then he begins to orchestrate phase three, which is planting the seeds of suspicion. Whispers that suggest a previously unthinkable interpretation of the data that they have. And so we get, in the end, Círdan coming to Thingol with... Just as Feanor himself was, like, speaking the lies of Morgoth, right, even as he was resisting Morgoth, so Círdan comes to Thingol with the lies, you know, with, like, the manipulations and lies of of Sauron on his tongue. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Ellen, I haven't said it would be trivial for anybody to talk about the Helcaraxa. I'm not trying to trivialize that at all. I, quite to the contrary, how difficult it would be for them to talk about it would be part of the point. It's part of what would convey to the Sindar what a big deal it was and why they would gain an admiration for them. No, they're not trivializing it at all. The, uh, quite the opposite. Um... But just saying that they are, in fact, willing to talk about it is not trivializing it at all. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. I'm liking the shape of this. I think that this works really well. Thinking of it in those three phases. And it could be the desire to sow the seed, these particular seeds of dissension that leads Sauron to have his... I'm going to um, capture elves and, like, release them back and use them to plant stories and things like that. Okay. All right, cool. We are well over time, and I was supposed to have started my next broadcast five minutes ago, so we should stop now. But I wanted to finish working that through. That was good. And it makes me feel like we actually accomplished something concrete in this episode, in this session, rather, rather than uh, merely discussing vague cultural things, which were still important (laughs) and good to have discussed, but okay. So next time, uh, we will, uh, uh, we will think about, we'll, we'll we'll definitely do Kierden and Galadriel. I want to think, um, 
using uh, Kierding and Galadriel will be a great way to focus this down to a more personal set of interactions, thinking about concrete persons, concrete uh, members of the Noldor and Sindar uh, uh, interacting with each other. Um, not that they are the typical people meeting in a pub, of course, but yeah. Okay, cool. Um, good. All right. So focus on Celeborn and Goadriel for next time, and if we get further uh, than that as well. The one thing I would point out, Marie, we did uh, essentially do the... Uh, um, what do we do? Some other Noldor-centric plot lines, right? Like we got Nevrost and Gondolin. We worked. The, so it's not like we didn't accomplish anything else. We totally, we totally crossed some of those other Noldor-centric plot lines off our list. So that was good. Anyway, okay. Glad you're in Caliborn for next time. And then if we get a chance to move on to other things, we'll also move on to other things. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. And Godspeed.